The Koi Gig Pod. I wouldn't care if Megan Campbell didn't have hamstrings left. If yeah. she just stood on the sideline, she has to play. And subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. So very good morning to you this Monday morning. It is uh, just coming up to 7.32. OTBAM is brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Nathan Murphy's here. Nathan, good morning to you. Good morning, Jer. I think we should really start with Rory McIlroy, even though, you know, Aston Villa's clearly... You want to have your Villa moments. No, yeah, no, we, we haven't seen you since Stevie G got the bullet. I'm very sad for him. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. It would have been great if it did. Interesting how well the team played in the immediate aftermath of his absence. So, interesting, uh, Leon Bailey and Danny Ings playing really, really well. Uh, I saw the stat that it was the first time that Leon Bailey, uh, Danny Ings and Wendia all started together for the first time. They were the ones that Christian Perslow said, they're the replacement for Jack Grealish. Well, I mean, if they played the way they did the other day, we'd be like, oh, okay, not bad. Uh, Aaron Danks is your new man. Aaron, Aaron Danks. Danks sounds like some lad who's given money to the Conservative Party, you know, dodgy cash. And uh, and he's like uh, Brexit's number one supporter. Exactly. Uh, it turns out he's not though. It, it he, turns he, out it's a different guy. He's a local lad who um, who worked at Anderlecht and worked at the FA and did a bit of work at West Brom. I mean, I've, I'm reading this in the papers. It's going, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, well, like, Wikipedia tells me he spent some time with the Golden State Warriors. All right. I presume this was probably when he was doing his pro license. He went over and he spent some time uh, with Steph Curry and give, Steph Curry's. Give it a thanks at the end of the season. Is that what you're thinking? Well, uh, what about Daichi? Nah, like, I mean, no, no. Why would you do that? Well, 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 who, like, I, I know you've got I don't a have very any delusions high opinion of yourself, I don't. Aston Villa. I, well, they've got money, this, they've got money. They, well, money the opinion, money the can't opinion, buy your love, Jer. Money Nathan. can buy your love, Nathan. That's, the, that's one of those lies that you get taught yeah. as a child. Yeah. Money Aston Villa buys are love. the proof. Aston Villa are the proof. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, think back to Paul Daniels. When What first made you fall in love with the millionaire Paul Daniels? I mean, money buys love. That is one of the things that you just... It, it's a truism you could... Oh, yeah. Because the song is so catchy, isn't it? Yeah, but it can. It's true. It can buy you love. It buys you love in all sorts of, all different walks of life. There's a little bit of parenting advice for you this morning if you want it. We've lapsed into an episode of the Dadcast. Uh, so, uh, Pochettino would not be interested, unless it's some kind of ridiculous offer was, uh, was how it was phrased. And I was like, we'll just make him a ridiculous offer. Like, there's no point. So I don't think they should go for Pochettino, by the way. I think that um, he would be frustrated and would be using the club as a stepping stone, all that kind of stuff. Like, you want to find a, a, a hungry manager, somebody who's as hungry as Brendan Rodgers. Um, and, I, like... Was that your dream, that Rodgers would get sacked, that they wouldn't not my have dream, won their last couple of games? I, I, I quite like Brendan Rodgers compared to almost everybody that we work with. I would, have a much, I would be much more comfortable with Brendan Rodgers than almost anybody I know. But, um, look, that's just a... I saw him speak once and I was very impressed by him. Um and this was at a, a Celtic time and just thinking right, this guy's actually you know he's he's recovered from failure which I think in most sports management gigs you have to do at some point like literally everybody has failed at some point including oh, I don't know Alex Ferguson for example who Steven Gerrard well uh, that is the comparison that Eamon Dunphy is making he's blaming Tyrone Mings in his piece today well Tyrone certainly didn't help matters did he 
Gerard, Gerard's biggest problem, in my opinion, was Tyrone Mings, says Eamon Dunphy in the Star this morning. I can't get my head around the welcome this chap has for himself. Did someone tell him he was Franz Beckenbauer? He has serious notions about his own ability that he doesn't back up. Uh, every manager gets sacked. Even Ferguson got the boot early in his career. In Gerard's playing career, he had to deal with plenty of setbacks. He'll come back all the stronger for his Villa experience. I'm not sure he will. I don't think Stephen Gerrard understands why he got sacked. I don't think Stephen Gerrard is very good as a football manager. Have we have we got a breakdown yet of what happened on Thursday night with Stephen Gerrard? Well, there's, 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 How does he get home? There, there's conflicting reports, right? One report is that they, they stumped up for a, a taxi, like a chauffeur-driven... I presume it's a nice, like, tinted windows. You know, one of those, like, drivers... Driver might even be wearing a suit. They've got bottles of water in the boot. One of the other reports was that they made him sit at the front of the bus. <laughs> Now, I don't know which is true. Like, if the billionaires who live in London and run our own Aston Villa, you know, they have a London base. I don't know if they live there. I don't know, certainly, they don't seem to be yeah, training ground dudes. Um, if they forced him to sit on the bus on the way home, that's classless. That is not class E. That's like, we're sacking you now, but you've got to get the bus home. Now, maybe he could have stumped up for his own taxi. Uh, maybe he could have just booked into a hotel. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to go home to be with his family. I don't know. There are some reports then that there was like I, it's, I don't know why the reporting is so like it either happened or it didn't you know but um, what did you hear? I, I same as you I heard that um, he might have got a taxi but also somebody had spotted him at the front of the bus maybe he just hopped on the bus to say see you lads thanks for nothing yeah Tyrone the, the joie de vivre that the forward players in particular had when they were irrepressible and scoring goals in that first 15 minutes of the game, where, like, Leon Bailey has got picked up really good positions, has had some good, really good moments in games, but from just ping one in from a routine, a corner routine, after two minutes, I was like, well, this is pretty interesting. And then Danny Ings, I, I've, I've got to say, I was, I was out on Danny Ings from the moment he arrived, basically. Didn't think he was going to end up working, but if he plays like that, Danny Ings can score goals in the Premier League. We've seen it consistently, I know. Uh, except at Aston Villa. Uh, Leon Bailey's playing on the other side, which sort of makes sense when you watch him on the right wing and get incredibly frustrated time and time again as he checks back and doubts himself. Uh, but it's one game. Uh, Brentford is obviously probably their worst performance since they came back to the Premier League. You know, dead cat bounce and all that. I was, uh, I was under the impression that Danny Ings might be getting paid like ridiculous amounts of money to play for Aston Villa, and so therefore that kind of you know, is there an opportunity cost here that they could be using this money to maybe sign one of the kids on their own books to bring him anyway? But um, if Danny Ings scores two goals every week uh, and plays like that, I'll be pretty happy with life. John McGinn dropped. Just hasn't been playing well. I think McGinn will come back into the team in the coming weeks and take the captaincy off him, let him go back to enjoying his football. I'm a big fan of John McGinn as a person, as a footballer. I think that like he was unfortunately identified as Steven Gerrard's guy. And, you know, when the bad manager picks you as his guy, you're like, well, what do I do? These are my team. How do I, how do I carry this on my own? He can't do it. So I think McGinn will come back in. But like... Douglas Louise also playing brilliantly and uh, well, remarkable considering the last I saw of him on Thursday night he was getting sent off uh, <laughs> somehow that was overturned seems it wasn't really a headbutt maybe if he doesn't get sent off Aston Villa come back in that game I don't think they, they were going to Stephen Gerrard here Gerrard listen you enjoy this moment you enjoy this I moment I think the players because worst case scenario is about to happen for you you know they bring in your man from Sporting Lisbon 
they're all right. They finished the season 12th, but we're not talking about Aston Villa first thing on a Monday morning for the rest of the season. No, nobody well, cares anymore. We'll see, Back we'll to see. mid-table obscurity. We'll see. We, we should be sad lives. We should be talking about Rory McIlroy, though, right? We should, absolutely. Late nights at Rory McIlroy. Uh, won again last night. CJ Cup back as world number one for the first time since July 2020. His third victory in just over four months. And... God damn it, why isn't Augusta next week? Because there's no question he is the best player in the world right now. And I don't remember him playing this well. I know he's had better runs of success. He's obviously had runs of success that have included uh, running away with major titles. But his entire game looks so well-rounded. There's no doubts about any part of his game right now. His putting is exceptional. His short game, his iron play and his wedges have improved dramatically over the past year. Uh, obviously, the work he's doing with Brad Faxon on the greens uh, is paying off. And his game management, he just looks totally in control of everything that he's doing. Uh, so you just hope he can sustain whatever good feeling he has. And he was very emotional again last night, talking about what it meant to get back to world number one. Like he's, he, it feels like he's playing with a lot of emotion, which is a good thing. For Rory, because it definitely felt for a few years as if... He was a businessman instead of a golfer. And there was a bit of going through the motions, and he felt it would just happen. Whereas McIlroy's always been at his best when yeah. he's fighting for something. And like he is fighting for something now because he could go on and have... You know, it's a, very a, far a, away to the Masters, though. It's very far it away. Is, it is, and I've, this is the most excited I've ever been about Rory at this time of the year. Usually on Golf Weekly, everyone else gets excited. I'm like, come back to me in the first week in April. And even then, I'm sort of like, he's gone to the Masters in every type of form, out of form, in cracking form, and it's never quite happened. And this run of form has obviously come after St. Andrews when you know, he goes into the final round. And again, it felt was quite clinical in the way he approached the final round, was lacking that little bit of emotion. So all of this has come after major season, and he's the best player in the world after major season. He needs to find a spot where in that major season, which is now, remember, just four months long, where he is the man yeah. and racks up a couple of them very quickly. I think the most important thing about the moment is, though, that he's actually proven that he can come back from wherever it was, where however bad his game has got, that he's been able to get back to this level, which suggests he's going to be at this level or thereabouts for most of the rest of his career. Like, he could play into his 40s now and we would still believe that he's going to be able to put together a three or six months, which will allow him to catapult back in. Because when you do this once... When you do this twice, when you come back again, the way he's, he continuously comes back from bad form, that's the sign that deep down, fundamentally, he is a truly, truly great golfer. Well, this is the fourth wave of his career. And I saw a graphic last night of his world rankings, as you said, to come back. And he's basically had four where he's got up, come down, go up, come down. Now, his falls are down to world number 10 or world number 15, as it was this time. But every time it sort of lasted for a year, 18 months and dropped again for a year and come back. So you're right. Uh, maybe he can sustain this. Now, I also saw, you look at the world rankings when he got to the number one in the world for the first time uh, 10 years ago. I think five of the players that were in the top 50 in the world are still in the top 50. It moves very, very quickly. But to counter that, like Rory's 33. Phil Mickelson hadn't even won a major at this stage of his career. Yeah, yeah. And McElroy does feel in that mould that... Like, I was going to say... He's very balanced. He, well, he's going out enjoying it. He's picking yeah. and choosing what he wants to do with his life. Yeah, I was going to say, like all of the major life events that you would expect to have a significant impact on his ability to play golf have, have largely happened to him. You know, a high-profile court case, uh, getting married, the break-up of the tour and live golf. I guess, and then you look at Tom Brady and you're like, oh, well, you know, this is on a, there's still plenty for uh, that life can throw at him that might um, derail him. But anyway, let's move on. OTBAM brought to you live each morning with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. 
Gareth Roberts is going to join us at uh, 10 past 8 we'll have Cathy on talking about the Ireland draw in advance of that sports pages at 8.30 uh, Quinny at 8.50 uh, Daniel Harris at 10 past 9 <clears throat> and a clip from the Sunday papers at half past 9 but at 7.43 a little late into this week's Gillette Labs performance rankings you know that wasn't an All Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is we've just lacked that intensity. Boom. Where do we go? We will start, Jer, with Liverpool. Uh, in the red once again. It's either red or green or red or green for Liverpool every second week at a. Uh, Fully deserved to be back in the red this week, beaten by Nottingham Forest, and it does feel as though that victory against Manchester City was something of a one-off, that this was Liverpool raging against the dying of the light, that they managed to get back to their full level of intensity, but it's just not going to be there on a weekly basis, and it really is going to put their Champions League hopes in pearl when you look at what Newcastle are doing and you look at the amount of contenders that are there the lack of consistency like we've had everything from Liverpool over the last week we've had the unbelievably good against Manchester City unbelievably bad and then they sort of scraped win against West Ham in the middle the second I see a Liverpool team with Elliot Carvalho and Jones I'm concerned did he was he forced to do that or was but this he is this is the problem that again Liverpool have so many injuries and he's obviously trying to rotate uh, the team and keep Jordan Henderson fit. Like Henderson obviously can't play. It seems maybe even uh, two games in a week at this stage. Whatever injury. Is he trying to mind it for the World Cup? No. I don't know. He ain't doing that. But like, I think it's as much as they're all very talented players, you wonder have they fully got that Liverpool mindset that's been there from Henderson and from Fabinho and from Vinaldum before that as to how hard you have to work. Like We're talking about a 19, a 20 and a 21-year-old in key roles. Now, they should be good enough. They should be good enough to go and beat uh, a Nottingham Forest who haven't won since back in August. But is the work rate there from the three of them? Joe Gomez probably sums up a lot of Liverpool's problems. You can see why Joe Gomez hasn't kicked on to the next gear. A game like Manchester City where you have no choice but to concentrate like your life depends on it because you're going up against Erling Haaland and he's all in on it. Like, doesn't put a foot wrong. (coughs) Then he just drops off lightly. It's Nottingham Forest away. It'll be fine. Not quite at it, and it just all falls apart. And yeah, Liverpool had a lot of possession. Yeah, they created uh, a lot of chances, but I, you know, I don't think it was a massive shock that Nottingham Forest got the goal when they did. And it feels as though this is going to be Liverpool all season. It's just can they get enough of that good stuff that we saw against Manchester City? Yeah, I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. I think there's a problem with your microphone there as well, so we might uh, try and get you hooked up to a new one. So Liverpool are in the red following their performance. Okay, it's Nottingham Forest. We'll talk with Gareth Roberts in a bit more detail about this later on. But if you're a Liverpool fan, what, what, like what? Just tell us. Uh, you can get in the comments. You can get busy at Off the Ball AM on Twitter either. Uh, also, in the red this morning are Leeds, and um, traditionally, what happens is we put a team in the red, and then at ten past ten after we're off air this morning, the manager gets sacked. Are they at that stage where Jesse Marsh is actually going to get sacked today? Or have they gone so far into the whole Jesse Marsh revolution and the fact that they're kind of lining up the San Francisco 49ers ownership to buy the club outright at some point over the next 18 months? Do they need an American to keep that of interest? Somebody who can, you know, schmooze 
and make that whole process work. I don't know, Nathan, you might be back. Good, good film. Good film there, Chair. Uh, well done. Uh, yeah, no get, wins in eight now for Leeds, and it really does feel like it's, it's up for uh, Jesse Marsh. You can't really be losing at home to Fulham in the manner that they did yesterday. It doesn't quite seem set on what his best team is. A lot of changes over the last few matches. You know, I commented a little on their game against Palace, was that only last week? And they're 1-0 up. They have chances. And Patrick Bamford's missed a couple of big, big chances in it's the last few games. He's just coming back uh, from, from that long-term injury. Uh, missed a one-on-one to put them 2-0 up against Palace when they were totally dominant in the first half an hour of that game and they end up losing it. Obviously misses the penalty. You know, Has that bizarre dive against Arsenal as well where you're, I mean, is this, this Patrick Bamford is a sort of inner frustration. And it's, it's, it has to be a transformation of a team. Like Bielsa's side, and you know, there's a lot of comparisons in the papers of the run of form that got Bielsa sacked and uh, Jesse Marsh's run of form is on a par, if not slightly worse right now, so should he be sacked as well? But Bielsa's team, you sort of knew exactly what it was going to be and so many of those key players are either not there or have lost form. So Luke Ayling came back in yesterday, but uh, you know, some of us thought he was maybe the best right back in the Premier League a couple of years ago. He hasn't been anywhere near that of late. Uh, Stuart Dallas, you remember, picked up a real horror injury probably six, nine months ago at this stage. You know, he was a massive player for them. And they sold their best two players in Calvin Phillips and Rafinha. And the players who've come in haven't been of the same calibre, certainly not yet. Like Mark Roca, I think, has looked decent in the middle of midfield coming in from Bayern Munich. Brendan Aronson has had moments, but Leeds fans seem to be incredibly frustrated with them. He's quite an exciting player, but there's not always the finished product. And they've sort of been reliant on Rodrigo, rolling back the years a bit, and just about getting them enough goals. Uh, but there is the problem as well. Much like I think Stephen Gerrard at Aston Villa, were Leeds fans ever fully convinced by Jesse Marsh? I don't think they were. Um, but he might be good. Uh, it, it's very early, is it not? Like, are there not some signs that that team is playing high intensity, high energy, and they're just like... So the difference between Fulham, Fulham are in seventh, and Leeds are 18th and there's nine points in the difference at this stage, which obviously is quite a significant amount, given there's only nine games gone. But, like, that's, you know, two wins closes that gap, and Spurs, as we were talking about off-air, have lost two games in a row. So, like, some of these teams, like Forrest, are making the decision that you're you're our guy, if we go down, you're going to bring us back up. And I think they're going to be rewarded for that in the long run. Maybe Leeds can't afford to go down, and maybe that's the whole point, is that they need somebody... Maybe they end up turning to a Sean Dyche figure. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think any of these teams can afford to go down at this stage. And you're right. Like Fulham now are up to seventh. They get a couple of wins. And I do think the way that the Premier League is set up this season, where there's so many midweek matches, sort of changes the dynamic because things happen so quickly that you're losing three games in the space of six, seven days. And the pressure that's going to come on is intense. So suddenly you find yourself dropping five, six places. Like one win for Leeds in any of those. And they're up to... 14th, they're on 12 points and they're well, within a victory of Liverpool in 8th, but they haven't been able to get any of them and I think that's the problem that they, you know, they've had that one big victory against Chelsea and since then nothing has really happened, and you're right, they do play with a, play with a good intensity but we're pretty much a third of the way into the season and it's probably a make your decision now you know, a lot of the teams seem to be looking actually make the decision before the World Cup break so you get a couple of weeks with absolutely everybody before the World Cup starts and then you get the full month of the World Cup to really work with everybody who's left behind the um, YouTube user Confidence Wellness 
not much uh, wellness going on here. Marsh has to go, but the board won't get rid of him until after Liverpool. No plan, no direction. Bielsa made good players better. Marsh is a nice guy, but tactically out of his depth. I don't know. Maybe I... I, 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 uh, yeah, I, 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 and I can I see how they leave fans will say this, but I think there's a point there of the lack of full appreciation of what Marcelo Bielsa managed to achieve with that group of players as you went through them. In the hierarchy above him. Like, I don't know. No, like, that team that played so brilliantly in their first season in the Premier League, like, it was not a team full of superstars at all. He had made almost all of those players individually better, got the absolute best out of them. Colin wants to know, does Bielsa still live in Yorkshire? Surely he'd return. Does he still live in his little flat? Does he? I'd say he must be moving. Yeah, like, Do you think Bielsa has like a massive mansion in London that he spends four days a week, but then he flies back up, gets a helicopter up to... To Leeds and make sure he goes into Sainsbury so he looks like the you know down to earth this is our guy uh, surely he lives on the Pacific somewhere the rest of the year like in a little cabana drinking rum that's what I would do if I was like a multi-millionaire football manager I'm trying to do anyways uh, Arbo the Liverpool owners need to spend big in the next two transfer windows to get ready for next season it's stale big time Trent Alexander-Arnold is shocking and is being targeted Gomez is a sleeping bag Milner is great but is 62 uh, Liverpool could be saved by the World Cup says Owen McDermott only three Premier League games left then Klopp can sort this out and bring some midfielders in in January City will win the league and then two to six could be any order and then Alan Pembroke says Conte and Spurs definitely in the red how do they manage to avoid the red I will never know uh, very bad results last week system starting to show its weaknesses um, it was I was listening to a good bit of you and then flicking onto the TV uh, for the commentary on the Newcastle game Jamie Carragher saying uh, nah, nobody was talking about Newcastle for Champions League I was like Jamie where have you been on my life this show we literally they're going to finish above Man United I said it at the end of last season laughed out of the room by the Man United fans I think they could finish in the Champions League spot. They should be aiming for the Champions League. No, not this season. They've got to build gradually. Aim for like seventh or eighth, you know. Don't be getting ideas. They've only spent 200 million. They should absolutely be looking at the Champions League. Uh, yeah, I think they are. And as I said, that's why it's quite perilous for Liverpool that you can't afford to slip up because there's seven teams uh, trying to get in there. Yeah, Tottenham avoid the red just because there was two teams worse than them uh, this weekend. And it wouldn't even be Tottenham, I think. Like, it's Hugo Lloris. Who ends up in the red? You were a bit harsh, I thought. Why? Because it did look like he was fouled. Are you allowed to body check lads now? He didn't body check them. They just ran into each other. No, it was like it was like two uh, douchebag high school American footballers celebrating. <laughs> Chest bump. So that's what so, happened. So wait a second. So as we know, what happened was Callum Wilson stayed in his feet, turns around, lovely finish, dinks it over, back at net. If Callum Wilson goes to ground, is it a free kick and a red card? Um. No, but who it's had just possession? Together. Who had possession of the ball? But he had lost possession. Lloris didn't have possession. It's not like Lloris. I think if Lloris had managed to just volley that forward and then clattered into him, nobody even thinks about this again. I. But I, because Lloris miscontrols the ball, it does seem and they just run into each other. Uh, Calvert Lewin also had like a nice push when he was going past the guy, and there was another goal as well over the weekend where somebody just <laughs> swatted somebody aside. I think there was a double double hand push. I guess the rules are the rules and everybody understands that we're letting a lot more go. But it did look to me like proper body check. Still, I thought great finish. And then the goal after that, um, the youngest looking 27-year-old in the Premier League with an absolutely sensational goal. Miguel Almiron. Well, it was terrible defending. Look, again, I think because there's so many games so quickly, you look at Tottenham, they should be in the red. They're third in the table. 
like that's where that's where Tottenham should be. That should be the height of their ambitions for this season. If they somehow finish third in the table, it'll be a very good year. But this is Antonio Conte. This is what you get. We saw it last season. We saw it at Chelsea. You get these runs where they don't create a huge amount. Like they're at home yesterday and they're playing like the away side. Like it's all about counter-attacking football. And they created a lot of chances. They should have been in front before Newcastle got the goal. Kane had chances. Son had chances. They should have scored. But in the second half, when they have possession and they're pushing. They've no creativity, and the loss of Kulusevski is enormous. Arguably more important for Spurs right now than Harry Kane is, because he's the one who gets the ball to Harry Kane and Hyung Min Son. Like Son, aside from the couple of opportunities on the counter, was very, very quiet again yesterday. No Richarlison either. Like Oliver Skip in midfield. Like, Oliver Skip's not good enough if you want to be challenging for titles. I know it's his first start of the season. Uh, Bittaker's grand. Hoiberg wasn't there yesterday, but again, he's steady. Basuma's steady. But that's what Conte wants, and he'll grind out enough results over the season that they'll probably finish inside the top four. But if they'd won these two games against United Newcastle, they're top of the league right now. Basuma was supposed to be better than this, though, right? Like, that was a big money signing, much coveted. Basuma was supposed to be at the Tielemans level where he was going to be able to come in and have a big influence, but he hasn't. They, like, they oh, barely he's been slow to get him in there as well. He's yeah. been slow to get him in there, and he was the one who sort of played at the base of the three yesterday and allowed Skip to get forward a, a little bit more, and he was fine. Maybe he grows into the role. I, I wouldn't be panicking if you were a Tottenham supporter. Like well, it's, it's going okay. Maybe just another season of Champions League qualification is considered building on the foundations, and then you are able to attract better talent next season. And that this isn't... like They're not going to win the league, right? Because <clears throat> we expect Man City to win the league. <clears throat> so after that then, just making sure that you do finish in the top four probably is... The type of situation that will keep Conte interested, that will keep but him... But that's the other worry, isn't it? Like, that this could implode with Conte at any second. Well, like, there's some big games coming up. We touch Liverpool, Leeds at Anfield next Saturday. Liverpool go to Tottenham the week after that. OK, but it is still a big enough job that if, if Conte decides, I've had a fit of peak, that actually they're back at the level now where you're going to be able to get a world-class manager. Potch. Uh, maybe. Uh, unlikely, but maybe. Um, uh, what about Newcastle? Uh, are they going to get any credit? I think they'll get lots of credit. Like defensively, they are exceptional. Now it's funny the criticism of Trent Alexander-Arnold, which I think we'd all agree uh, defensively. You know, Keith Tracy was making the point. Kieran Trippier, like if that's Trent Alexander-Arnold getting spun the way that Trippier did by Harry Kane yesterday, he's getting absolutely hammered. Uh, but generally at the back, like they have the best defensive record in the Premier League, and whatever Tottenham threw at them in the last half an hour, they dealt with very easily. Remember they're missing Isaac and Sam Maximan yesterday. Uh, to come back in, probably not till after the World Cup in Isaac's uh, case, but will they go and invest then in January as well and really kick on You'd and say get there a season ahead of plan possibly and get into the Champions League? You would think so. One, one point, uh, Michael McCarthy in studio last week was making the case that every time you talk about Newcastle, you have to point out the fact that they spent all this money and it's basically a cheat code and like, you know, Eddie Howe getting praise and I don't want to be, he's probably sitting listening to this going, well, that's not exactly what I said. But I do think Eddie Howe's doing a really good job and I think that like loads of other clubs have spent loads of money. Aston Villa have spent loads of money. Manchester United have spent loads of money and they don't have as cohesive an identity as Eddie Howe has managed to get from this team and even missing those players that you're talking about, they still play to the same plan and the same pattern. It did strike me, it did strike me that there's a world in which Eddie Howe keeps going the way he's going the World Cup goes a certain way and then Eddie Howe skips out of the old blood money Saudi Arabia situation takes the England job and then the jo- the choice of super clubs for the rest of his career is his after however badly or well that England job goes. Yeah, interesting theory. Um, 
does he feel that he needs to run away from the blood money? There's been no signs of it so far. Well, you're not going to you're not going to say it publicly, are you? <laughs> I'm having doubts about this. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not sure. We've just signed this world class young striker. I, I feel really guilty about it. It's true. Um, yeah, I think you're right. As I say, they've built it on a very solid defence. And there's players there that he's made a lot better, like Joe Linton has continued uh, his revival under Eddie Howe, like Sean Longstaff, remember when he was been linked with the move to Manchester United and then yeah. he just disappeared off the radar? Yeah. You know, he's playing every week in the middle of midfield. Like Almiron. Like Almiron now, as you say, like he looks like he's about 18. Uh, six goals already this season, totally revived. 15 in his total career, like in a gazillion games for Newcastle yeah. over the last three or four seasons. And all working unbelievably hard. And then that bit of quality as well, like Bruno Gramares is one of those, if Newcastle weren't the current Newcastle, uh, you'd be saying, is most definitely going to a team in the top four. But maybe he doesn't need to do that now. One last question. What the hell's going on with Matt Doherty? Like, oh, no, I'm not going to pick Doherty if I want to... So he didn't pick him. Uh, Emerson plays, doesn't play very well. I thought Emerson was all right. Bit stupid at the end when they're like chasing the game and he's like committing bad fouls. But anyway, OK. Um, Doherty comes on when he's chasing the game. He's the cavalry. You're like, well, that's interesting. Is there a hope here he might be able to... I wasn't surprised when I saw the team that uh, Emerson Royal was straight back in. Like, Conte has sort of nailed his colours to the mast here, that he's his boy. He has. Uh, Matt has probably done enough to, as you say, get on the pitch earlier than the 88th minute. And again, there's they're playing Champions League on Wednesday night. Maybe he's done enough that he can be part of more of a rotation and get every second game. Uh, but it does feel as though, unless Emerson Royal's form falls off a cliff, that Matt Doherty's going to be stuck in that, that bench role. Uh, or maybe he can get a move uh, Super Ken 354 says I don't think Newcastle should get any credit lads Saudi Arabia FC with their hypocrite of a manager should get zero credit I understand that viewpoint <clears throat> I do understand that viewpoint I do think that um, Eddie Howe is a good football manager uh, these two things are true you know um, they do have the ability to spend more money they've spent more money than most teams in that short period of time but he has managed to make that money be well spent and yes what Saudi Arabia is doing with their sports washing campaign is fairly straightforward. Many other countries are doing the same thing too. So, let's move on. In the amber, well, we're going to hear from Amber Barrett hey. in a moment. Hey, see what we did there. Uh, Republic of Ireland's World Cup draw, bright and early Saturday morning. Uh, from a purely footballing point of view, it's a very difficult draw. Uh, but from a supporter point of view, and I think from a generating interest and really capitalising on the buzz that's there, it's a very good draw. So, Australia... Opening day of the tournament uh, in Sydney. Going to be a sellout crowd of over 40,000. There's a lot of travel. Head over to Perth then. Get the old four-hour flight to take on Canada, uh, who are one of the best teams in the world. And then Nigeria, who are the top fourth-seeded team, who've been at every World Cup, the best of the African nations, uh, all the way back to take them on in Brisbane. The kickoff times have just been confirmed in the last few minutes. So all the games are going to be 8 p.m. local time, uh, which, again, I think is a really good thing. It means all the games will be sort of mid-morning. Irish time, because there was a concern, and I said there's, you know, there is two sides to this. There's the pure footballing side, but there's also what it can mean for the game in this country uh, that the games will be on at five o'clock in the morning, and it'd be very difficult to for people to watch them or to create the uh, energy that they want. But I think this is sort of perfect. They'll all be nice times for those of us who are stuck at home. Uh, but also, they're all in good cities for a massive Irish supporter. Saw Louise Quinn saying that aside from Australia and New Zealand, she'd be fairly confident that Ireland will have the next biggest supporter base. It'll be tough to get tickets, I suspect, for the opening night of the tournament uh, against Australia. Remember, Ireland beat Australia uh, a year ago, which sort of started the revival. Yeah. Uh, was a friendly, and Australia are going to be going into that off the back of a lot of friendlies because they qualify automatically. 
And uh, we can hear from Amber Barrett, but one of the one of the key things for Ireland is like they're set up for tournament football. It feels because they're so bloody difficult to play against. Like they know how to win games one nil. They know how to eke out a result, which in the group stages of a tournament, uh, when you are going in as massive underdogs, you're going to say Euro 2012 here. Yeah, I can I can see it in your face. Uh, I think we'll stand to them. You want to hear from Amber Barrett? Sitting, uh, doing the permutations over the last few days of the best possible group the most difficult possible group. Uh, this probably veers more towards the most difficult sides. Have you, as players, been doing that? Have you been, like, what was, what was, what did you want from this draw? Was it, was it just being in Australia where you know you'd have a big Irish support? Was it test yourself against the very best right from the group stage? Or was there a hope that actually maybe, you know, on paper it would be more appealing? Though, as you say, you've already beaten Australia uh, very recently, uh, and I'd imagine confidence levels are incredibly high. So, so what, what were you thinking before the draw, and has that changed since? Yeah, I think just what you've said. Like, I, I think you know when when we were all looking at the you know the pot one, and like I think regardless of what group you were going to be in, looking at any of the top the pot one seeds, I think you were going to have a difficult game. You were you know literally the best teams available in the world were in it, and. I don't think that, again, as I said earlier, I don't think we were looking at it being like, oh, Jesus, you know, I hope we avoid this one or I hope we avoid that one. Um, honestly, like, it's not, I'm not just saying this, but there is just the sense with this team as we're just so bloody happy to be there. You know, it didn't, it doesn't matter who we have. It didn't matter who we, ha- you know, who we had or who we avoided or what it will mean for, you know, if we get out of the group, what does it mean? Or if we don't get out of the group, what does it mean? Like, it's not about that. I think, you know, we've spent, such a long period of time you know this group of players but also the players before us have been waiting for this moment to get ourselves to this to be playing against the best teams in the world and absolutely showcasing ourselves and showcasing our qualities and capabilities and I think you know I definitely think a lot of teams would have been saying that they didn't want to play Ireland you know and I think that's one thing that we'll definitely be carrying through with us next year we won't we won't give any team an easy game anyway that's guaranteed. So it's not um it's not that uh, we're just going there to make up the numbers. It's uh, we're going there with a sense of freedom that we're now here to express ourselves. That's what I'm taking from that. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of confidence in the squad uh, that they can go and play against these top class opposition. You know, the draw against Sweden, uh, beating Finland twice, beating Australia in the friendly. It'll be interesting to see what sort of games they go for between now and the World Cup. There's still uh, quite a bit of speculation about a potential friendly against England. Between now and then, it won't be next month. Vera Powell was answering a lot of questions about logistics and finances. And uh, obviously, it's back in the front pages again um, about uh, what's gone on in the FAI in previous years. And more will come out, it seems. But the perilous state of the FAI's finances uh, affecting what they might want to do next month. So there is a gap for a friendly next month. It does look as though Ireland will play a friendly. But Vera Powell basically made a deal back in the summer and said, uh, we'll worry about the November thing when it comes around. I want all that money for that camp. And I want to go to Turkey for a training camp ahead of the game against Georgia. That obviously worked brilliantly. They've qualified. And you really hope that the FAI and those around uh, Irish football find the money for whatever they need. Like, God almighty, this... But if we ever need reminding of uh, what's gone wrong in the FAI, this is another uh, case in point that we're talking about money and have they got all the resources necessary to prepare for a World Cup final. So hopefully they get that match uh, next month at home, probably in Cork if it is. Uh, because Tala is going to be redeveloped, and then it'd be brilliant if they got a Aviva Stadium against England just before they head off. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Uh, we're going to speak with Cathy McNeil a bit more about that uh, a little bit later on. So into the green first. 
Uh, into the green, Irish boxing. Uh, spoke about this on Thursday night as to what could happen. Ireland's most successful ever European Championships. Seven medals, uh, three gold, two silver and two bronze. So gold for Kelly Harrington, Amy Broadhurst and Aoife O'Rourke. Caitlin Fryers and Christina Desmond uh, took the silver medals on Saturday. So uh, Zorantia, again, just an insane achievement. The most successful team at the finals. Uh, Kelly Harrington completes the hat-trick. Olympic champion, world champion, European champion. And the depth that is there. Like we think back to... We're, what, a decade on from Katie Taylor in London at the Olympics for Irish women's boxing to have this amount of contenders just over 18 months out from an Olympics is incredibly exciting. A little bit of sizzle from Kelly Harrington's book as well over the course of the weekend where she was critical of Pete Taylor, said that uh, he would have blocked her from sparring against uh, Katie Taylor when they were uh, in the amateur ranks together. Uh, Pete Taylor denied that in the paper, saying if she wanted to spar, she could have sparred her. But um, So... You know, uh, and then also uh, she was talking about Bernard Dunn being allowed to leave as well. So all's not well within Irish boxing, and yet at the same time, Zorantia manages to stick results like this. You're kind of going, I guess it's pretty good. He seems pretty, pretty, pretty good. Well, that's the most remarkable side of this. Like boxing, amateur boxing at every level right now, from domestically to internationally, seems to be an absolute crisis. Yet Ireland continually turn up at major championships and delivers. And uh, Zoranti is obviously very good at staying out of the politics of it and just getting on with his job. And it's incredibly exciting to see what these fighters can do now over the next 18 months. How many of them will end up going to the Olympics? Obviously, there's not as many weight classes, which is a real shame on the women's side of it. Kelly Harrington and Amy Broadhurst, what happens there will be fascinating because they're both in the same weight division like do we have a box off between the two of them for a place in the olympics with kevin byrne on thursday night felt it would be very difficult for one of them to change their weight class for the olympics as amy broadhurst had done for the european championship so like that is a plot line uh, that could develop and again if irish amateur boxing was in a great place like how you could hype that over the next year and build it and build it and build the interest levels but that probably won't happen all right uh finally in the green shamrock rovers Yes, uh, tonight could be the night for Shamrock Rovers to complete the three in a row. Uh, they beat St. Pat's 4-1 on Friday night out in Tala. Came from behind, a uh, convincing victory, and that coupled with the fact that Derry ended up dropping points. Just a draw at home against Shelburne means, basically, to put it simple, uh, Derry have to win their last three games and Shamrock Rovers have to lose their last two games for Derry to win the league. Uh, if Derry drop points tonight against Sligo, away against Sligo, it's all over. Shamrock Rovers are champions. Uh, Stephen Bradley himself would admit he'd prefer it. It's next Sunday night. Uh, so Derry go to Tala to take on Shamrock Rovers next Sunday night. And I remember looking at the fixtures right at the start of the season thinking, oh, wouldn't it be brilliant if this was the grand finale, Rovers' last home game of the season. There's still something to fight for. Uh, and it may still come down to that if Derry win tonight. Uh, but again, Rovers just have so much depth, so much quality. They're under a bit of pressure early on. Concede a very early goal. Saw them scoring the last minute against Shelburne in their last home game. Uh, this time it was a bit more comfortable. A couple of penalty kicks in there as well. But their home form has been the difference this year. They haven't been beaten at home all season. They've only dropped points in two matches. Uh, whereas Derry really struggled at home this season. And it looks as though that will be the difference at the end of the season. Yeah, the atmosphere looked good. That was, I presume, you who was putting that up on our social. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, it was electric. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of pyro. Uh, as there seems to be in Tala, but there was, I think, uh, Pats, pyro, is pyro Pats, not good? Should we not just decide that, like, here's the pyro section and you're all allowed to have pyro in there? Well, I guess it's good until it lands right beside you or, you know, smacks you in the back of the head or something like that. But don't throw it. That, 
what's the point of it? People are always throwing it. So, uh, Don't be throwing it. Yeah, Pat said it's, I think, over 1,100 there. So, you know, it was full house. Um, they've been, Rovers have all been getting almost 7,000 for all the Friday night games. Yeah. They didn't have as many because of the European run. Well, let me, um, just, uh, you, you mentioned the redevelopment of Tala. What, what's going, it's extra, it's standing area, is it? Uh, no, they're building a north stand. F- and that'll be fully seated as well. Fully seated as well, yeah. I assume it'll be fully seated. I don't think anyone's building uh, terraces at this stage. So, um, yeah, it'll be it. Imagine this in Ireland, Jerry. You've never seen the likes of it. A stadium with four sides to it that all look the exact same. <laughs> Incredible. We actually haven't. I, I know. Uh, so, for, uh, for uh, yeah, so the stadium, the uh, Women's Cup final is on on Sunday week. And uh, as far as I know, that's the last game. And then it'll shut down uh, for the winter. And the new stand, I think they're hoping it'll be ready maybe for the European Games uh, next July. But it'll bring the capacity up towards 10,000. So, as I said, they're getting almost a full house when the games are on a Friday night. They'll obviously have a good bit of work to do to try and up that again by a, another couple of thousand. But it's heading in the right direction. And the facilities are good. Uh, you know, I've... As I said before, I think uh, for all the League of Ireland clubs, I'm sure when the season tickets go on sale in a couple of weeks, like, it's unbelievable value uh, to buy a season ticket. So go get it, enjoy it Friday night. It's a good day out. Yeah. Uh, you, you could do a voiceover for an ad if you wanted there, Yeah, we'll Nathan. take all that cash you're making. There you go. It's, uh, that's your this week's Gillette Labs performance ranking. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. You heard about uh, uh, Christian and Guru Murthy, did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I, I think ha- everybody who works, everybody who works in this I'd, business, goes, I'd happily have done that there. And you, you can get sacked for that. You can get sacked. What? You can get suspended for that? He didn't get sacked or suspended, did he? He did. He got suspended. Didn't oh, he get did suspended he? for a week? Oh, that's that's idiotic. He apologized straight away, and your man accepted his apology, and everybody everybody thanked it. Well, that was the best Come part on, of the Tom Twitter response. Everybody, everybody said, "But you are a." <clears throat> Hey, 12 minutes past eight this morning. A reminder that Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner at OTB. Each week we're giving one lucky viewer a hundred euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out Add Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Brayburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Brayburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go coffee experience on the road. It's available at Apple Green today. And a reminder, the Creasle Community Support Fund has been established by the Irish Red Cross in collaboration with OnPost and Apple Green. And uh, they'll be working, right, the Red Cross will work with the community of Creasle to ensure that all contributions will be used effectively and as needed to assist those affected by the incident. You can donate to the Creasle Community Support Fund if you just Google it you'll get the details on it. Now, we're back after the ads with the Liverpool broadcaster Gareth Roberts reacting to Saturday's big defeat at Forest. What does it mean for the rest of the season? OTB AM So every time every time somebody gets injured at the moment it's like, oh, uh, doubt for the World Cup Varane in tears on the pitch and we're still waiting for the official word to see exactly what it was. He thought it was something serious. Well, Eric Ten Hag said he was going for a scan yesterday and tried to calm the situation it seemed, but you can understand, there's not that three, four week break that was generally there before World Cup finals where if you get a little strain, you're fine. And a lot of managers are going to have to make decisions about players who will miss maybe the first game or the first two games. Like, Remember, there's, there's Premier League games on the Sunday and the World Cup starts the following Sunday. So there's no gap at all if you pick up a bit of a knock. And I suspect we'll see plenty more players leaving the pitch uh, in floods of tears. And... It's constant. So, you know, France, if Rad is gone, have lost Varane and N'Golo Kante. Um, and throwing the fact that, you know, Paul Pogba and Kylian Mbappe hate each other. And, uh, you know, are they the strong favourites that a lot of people feel that they should be? Uh, you know, England have the same problems. Like, are they going to take the risk on Rhys James? It's going to be very difficult, I feel, for Rhys James if they're saying he's going to be still in a leg brace 
when England are heading over to the World Cup to say, I'll be grand. I'll be fine. He'll be fine by quarterfinal, semifinal. Now, you can pick 26 players in the squad, so... You, you kind of have to take a bit of a risk, do you? More wiggle room. Like, is Reese James that good that you're, you're bringing him? Like, again, because they have so many right-back options, you've got to assume somebody's going to play themselves into that position as the tournament goes on, that like, maybe they end up having to go back to Trent Alexander-Arnold. Like, wouldn't it be remarkable? I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced this is happening. If Trent ends up playing, you end up starting, and England end up winning the World Cup, and he's their main man, and he turns out he can play for England like he played for Liverpool, and all this is forgotten forever. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, forgotten forever, or what happens if... And he um, goes back and all the Liverpool fans hate him for well, being good at it for England. Or what if he reaches the semi-final and makes a mistake, where the ball goes over his head and somebody runs in, you know, Vinicius Jr. runs in behind him, sticks it, thanks very much, and then they before. do it again, you know? Um, I don't know. It, it, the injuries is going to be the thing that dictates how you feel about most teams and so therefore it's very difficult to go like JD was very confident money in the bank on Brazil you would feel that certainly at the moment the way a lot of their best players are playing very well and they do seem to have um, crazy strength and depth in a way that I don't really remember them having before but uh, all it needs is like one of the countries who is traditionally good at getting their shit together at a tournament to just have 12 players who play brilliantly uh, Varane is out for three, four weeks is the message uh, that we're getting in and Deschamps going to have to make a call on us. So again, three, four weeks is that awkward spot for a manager um, as to whether you stick with somebody. And again, maybe if it's... It depends on the injury because if it's three, four weeks and after three weeks you're back training and you're, and fine. you're so fit and you're ready to start a game on four weeks, then it's fine. But if... You know, I think if you're Reese James and you're in the leg brace, it's probably harder to make the case. And you're right, like the World Cup, there's no greater tournament for hindsight than going, ah, oh, yes, Germany, they have been building for this secretly by losing all their matches over the last two years. How do we not spot what they were really trying to do? Yeah. And all their guys are fit. So. Uh, everybody being fit is probably best ability is availability. 19 minutes past eight this morning. Time for us to turn our attention to Liverpool. I'm delighted to say Gareth Roberts is with us this morning. Gareth, this is a question that we started a lot of our Liverpool interviews with at the moment. What the hell's going on? Oh, good question, mate. Um, I mean... Everything that could go wrong sort of seems to be going wrong at the minute. Um, and I think every time I've come on here as well, it seems to have been after, after a bad result recently. Uh, and here we are again. I was kind of hopeful that, you know, playing a, a club as lowly as Nottingham Forest, we'd be coming on talking about, you know, Liverpool making it four in a row in terms of good results. But here we are once again. Um, I mean, it, it just seems that they're very fragile, both mentally uh, and in terms of, the squad in terms of if a couple of players are missing certain key players are missing you really notice the difference and I think that's what's, what, what happened at the weekend um, you know Thiago I think I've said on here many times for me makes a huge difference to the midfield and when he's not there you really really notice it in terms of dynamism in terms of someone who can create go past people play a pass that you wouldn't be expected um, and you know the midfield at the weekend uh, obviously we had what was it? Three players under under twenty one, um, and and I think you saw you saw the difference, obviously, and 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 we missed our Nunes. Um, there's been a lot of chat about him all season long about whether he's good enough, about whether Liverpool have overpaid, and all this kind of thing. That was a striker there who, who'd scored in his last three games. So to lose him was a big blow because the way the game went, and, and with Liverpool having a lot of opportunities in and around the Forest box. You'd like to think that Nunes, who is a box player ultimately, 
would have would have got on the end of one of those chances. Um, obviously, in terms of the manager, he comes out, doesn't he, and talks about set pieces. But for me, that was a little bit sort of papering over the cracks, really, because if you're playing if you're playing Nottingham Forest and you're Liverpool, um, you should be creating a little bit more than set pieces. I mean, he, he's right to say that you know the hat trick of chances that Van Dijk in particular has. You'd expect there to be a goal or two from those three chances. Um, but Liverpool needed to be more creative in open play and they simply weren't. And, you know, Forrest, a lot of endeavour, um, a lot of battle, a lot of fight, the, the ground up for it. Um, you know, this is why they're back in the Premier League, isn't it? They want to be in and among the, bo- the big boys, playing the big boys. So all of that was totally to be expected for me and it's not something new that Liverpool are facing there you know for me when Liverpool come to town anyway a lot of the time you see the crowd get up for it you see the team get up for it so none of that should have been a new challenge for Liverpool but they looked a little bit shell-shocked for me at times by that Um, you know they, they certainly didn't win the battle in midfield and there are too many players as well you know it's not just about the injuries the injuries is a big problem there's no two ways about that but I think as well a lot of key players just haven't looked in form all season I think the drop off from some is quite alarming Um, you know there was a drop off the end of last season I felt with Fabinho but he seems to have dropped even further and if you dig into his stats in terms of interceptions in terms of tackles things like that it just sort of backs up what you're seeing with your eye with him which is that he looks off the pace. Uh, people are passing around them and going past them uh, in a manner that we're not used to with him because he's been one of the best in the world in his position for me the last few seasons. So I thought he yeah, got back to form over the last couple of games as well. Maybe it was just that the surrounding cast are not used to what their role is to help him be his best. 100% that's a thing, isn't it? And, 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 you know, look, Curtis Jones wasn't expecting to be starting that game. Um, Thiago gets a, an ear infection at 5.15 in the morning, is rushed to hospital and is told to go home. And then Curtis, when he wakes up and has his cornflakes, is told, you're starting in midfield today. So, you know, that's not ideal. That's a lad there who's been out with, with injury himself for a long time. And I'm not pinning it on him for one second. He's a young player that is breaking through, that expects to play a certain amount of games this season for Liverpool, but doesn't expect to be a starter. And yet, you're right, look, there isn't that understanding between players that you get when you play a week in, week out, when you've got a system you all trust. The system's changed as well. So, you know, there's lots of things going on where you're just watching it thinking, well, this isn't the Liverpool I know and love. You know, where we are now, you know, we've lost as many league games in 11 games as we did in 38 last season. So, and you know, this is a Liverpool side that in in the past four seasons has gone through 90 points, you know, three out of those four seasons. Now, you wouldn't be backing them to do that this season now because you're looking at, you know, you're looking at they'd have to be absolutely perfect for the rest of the season. And, you know, there's nothing that suggests that's what, what they're going to be now. So now what they find themselves in realistically is secure in top four, making sure that Champions League qualification is there for next season. And trying to do something in the Champions League this season, obviously they only need a point against Ajax to qualify for the knockout rounds. And then once you're in those rounds, especially Liverpool being Liverpool, you know, you'd expect that they can sort of do anything. But equally, on the other side of the coin and a bit more sort of glass half empty, the way they're defending and the amount of chances that sides are getting against them week in, week out... You know, you you would think that the the better sides with the better strikers, etc., would be having a bit of a field day against Liverpool right now. 
it does feel that the signing of Thiago changed that Liverpool midfield. The the swapping of a Vinaldum for a Thiago what he brings is obviously exceptional when he's at his very best and you say his range of passing but that the energy levels that were there of a Fabinho Vinaldum Henderson midfield they're nowhere near that now like Harvey Elliott never feels like he's going to be that sort of a, a midfielder again he's more in the creative mould whereas Liverpool's midfield was all about winning tackles and I still go back to Fabinho against Palace at the start of the season the tackle he misses that every other season for the last three or four years he wins and they don't get that chance was that was that an intentional change in philosophy do you think from Klopp to move away to not not maybe look for a direct replacement for Ronaldum or to look for a like for like for Henderson who's you know obviously not able to play every week now I think you're onto something there because I, I remember um, a couple of seasons ago now, I think it was, that um, Pep Linders was interviewed and, and in and among the interview, a little sort of nugget that stood out for me was that one of the questions was around Liverpool playing the same way for a long time and, you know, would it be a problem that they could potentially be worked out by opponents and things like that? And Linders sort of said, well, we've got something up our sleeve along, uh, you know, along those lines. And I think what he meant was Thiago. Uh, and then Thiago comes in and, you know, when he's when he's fit and when he's at his best, I, I think he is transformational as a player. But I think the problem, as we've just touched on a minute ago, is that there are no players that are anything like him um, so when he's not in the side, all of a sudden you're having to revert to something else. And and you're right to point out in terms of energy as well. I mean, with Fabinho uh, dropping a little bit off a cliff form-wise, you're also running alongside Henderson, who's 32 now. Um, and for all these years playing for Liverpool under Klopp, he's been playing in a very highly intense system where, you know, almost... The, the, the secret recipe is Liverpool's effort, is Liverpool's ability to close down, is Liverpool to outrun you first and foremost. And that's not been happening this season in a lot of games. And, you know, you looked at, you looked at Forrest, you know, that's what they were doing to Liverpool. They weren't allowing Liverpool any time on the ball. And Liverpool didn't seem to be able to do too much about it at times. And that's what we were doing to other sides. And then added with the sprinkle of, of quality up front, you know that's how Liverpool were beaten sides. Right now, it, 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 I'm not too certain what a Liverpool, a typical Liverpool goal looks like. So you know, instead we're talking about well, if Darwin Nunes had been available, he would he would have undoubtedly caused the the, the Forest defence problems. He would have done, but it's not. That's not like a systematic thing. That's it, it, Liverpool very much feel like, and, and I know people hate the phrase and all the rest of it, but. I'm going to have to use it. it. It feels like they are a little bit in transition right now, but it also feels that has been under investment in the squads, and that's coming home to roost as well. Uh, last time again, when I was on here, and we're still talking about the same issues, you know, the the bargain basement running around the supermarket last minute and buying our tour, you know, that that's come back and hit them in the face as well because he's now injured. And I think one of the problems is when I see people assessing Liverpool. They'll write down the squad and they'll say, well, there's all these players and, you know, every every club has to deal with injuries and this kind of thing. But some of the players that Liverpool are relying on being a member of the squad are ridiculously injury prone, are out so often. It's unbelievable. So, you know, you look at even the players who are out. So, Thiago, ear infection, OK, can happen to anyone, but his injury record is not the best. Keita's injury record is not the best either. He's not someone you think you can rely on to be there more often than not. We saw Chamberlain come on the pitch for 14 minutes at the weekend. 
touch the ball once in 14 minutes and, and essentially have no impact. He's another one where, you know, his recent injury record's not great. So all of a sudden, these players that you're talking about as being part of Liverpool's squad are actually very rarely part of Liverpool's squad. Yeah, and surely yeah. that was known behind the scenes. Well, and the and bench wasn't particularly strong. I know, I know there's better. injuries. But I'm wondering, is there, is there any concern about the amount of injuries that they're picking up again? Because obviously, in the COVID year, it like destabilised them completely, the amount of injuries. Yeah. But, like... They're playing three young lads, but they're missing, and we talk about investment, like they're missing the attacking investment they've made. Nunez isn't there, Diaz isn't there, Jota isn't there, all out injured. Matip and Kanate are injured again. You touched on the other three who are also out. Trent's just coming back. Henderson hasn't been able to stay fit. Like, Is there a deeper concern, do you think, around the club as to the amount of injuries they're picking up this season and whether they can get on top of it? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be, hasn't there? I mean, we're only sort of guessing on that, aren't we? We can never know sort of what the systems are behind the scenes and things like that. I mean, you know, you go back to last season, 63 games. I think they absolutely poured everything into that, into into trying to make history. And they went as far as anyone has, you know, in terms of closeness to, to, to achieving the quadruple. Um, ultimately, of course, you know, it's another 90-point season, but it's another 90-point season minus the title. Um, you know, they don't get the European Cup and they win the two domestic trophies. But, you know, they were looking a bit gassed towards the end of that. You know, I remember being in the stands at, you know, Villarreal away. And, you know, that was a crazy game. And, and you know, there, 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 were, there were games towards the end of last season that Liverpool weren't in control of, uh, but managed to get through the other side. So I think even then, there were there were players in the side then that looked a bit gassed. And, and, and certainly now, you know, that, that looks the case now. So so even even the players that, we you know, we've relied on um, in, in these last few seasons, you know, Robertson one side, Trent the other, you know, you've had the, you've had those players missing games. You've had those players looking like they're out of form. You know, Liverpool aren't switching wings and aren't stretching teams like you've seen them do in seasons before. So, it it does seem like the you know the, the, there's work to be to, there's work to be done. But what I wouldn't do, and what I see a lot of people doing, is just trying to find one thing to pin it on. Liverpool are a club, so you've got owners, you've got managers, you've got coaches, and you've got players, and there's fingers to be pointed at every level. So they all need to come together and come up with a bit of a plan. And part of that plan has got to be spending money. Part of that plan has got to be finding a system that works and that is testing other sides. And part of that plan, as you point to, maybe, is is looking at, you know, what are they doing? Does it work in terms of, you know, intensity and the amount of injuries they're picking up? I'm sure they're looking at all this. I mean, you know, Clock referenced, didn't he, that it was three games in a week or so. And, that, and we've seen that before, but Liverpool have managed to get through those games in the past where, you know, at the weekend, from very early on in the game at the weekend, I thought, you know, Liverpool don't look on it here. We're giving the ball away far too much. So people are pointing to Liverpool have more possession and have more shots and things like that, and I understand why. But they also gave the ball away a lot more than Nottingham Forest did and ultimately paid the price for it. Jared, can I just ask you on Klopp and if what they're looking at? Like nobody has got more credit for what Liverpool have done than the manager, and rightly so. And that term "mentality monsters" that he created this ridiculous team who are always on, and maybe that's the most remarkable part from what we've seen over the past few weeks is that they've somehow managed to sustain such a high level for so many years. But if you look at say Joe Gomez as maybe the prime example of where they've struggled this season, he was unbelievable last week against Manchester City. He was up for it. He was on it. He was all 
all over Erling Haaland. He knew exactly what he had to do. But he rarely gets to that level. And, and that feels like a mentality thing. And is any of that on the manager that he can't get a Joe Gomez up for every single match? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find it difficult to, to question things like that. I, I just think sometimes maybe in football, you know, there's only so many things you can say over and over and then eventually the impact will wane a little bit. So I'm not for one second suggesting that we need a change of manager. I don't think we do. Um, as you said there, he's got more than enough credit in the bank. Um, I've, I've said already about, you know, the season after season of racking up 90-odd points. Uh, you've got to take into consideration what Liverpool are competing with. And, um, you know, for some reason that almost turns into a meme when Klopp mentions it. I still don't quite understand why that is. Um, if we're going to ignore the reality of the competition, then we may as well do, or pack up and go home. Like, it's unbelievable what Liverpool are having to compete with. And in any other era of football, you know, 97 points wins you the league, 92 points likely wins you the league. And we've we've got both of those totals and not won the league. So, you know, that that might be a factor, to be honest with you, that the fact that you can put so much effort into a season and emerge with only the Masters trophies. That's got to be a little bit of a depressing, you know, fact, essentially. Um, and I, I, questioning the attitude of either the manager or this group of players, I'm loath to do because of what they provided for us. Um, I don't believe for a minute there's a, there's an arrogance I just I I I do I just do wonder about the the amount of effort they've put in in a, a fairly short space of time with a squad that isn't deep enough essentially. I'd be I'd be looking at that before I start looking at mentality of players and questioning the manager. One last question is um the 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 world in which they don't qualify for next season's Champions League is is like we need to start thinking what that would look like. What what's the impact? Is there is there any way that they can turn it into a positive? next season where they're playing Europa League or maybe not even playing Europa League? Um, I'm struggling to find positives around that. I mean, Liverpool, you know, when when we missed out on the Champions League for a couple of seasons, it just felt so wrong to to not hear that anthem, to not be involved in those games. You know, Liverpool are an elite football club and should be playing in the elite football competition. So to be missing out on it... um, that, that would not be good whatsoever for Liverpool and it would be highly depressing to be back into the Europa League. Um, I still I, I would still 100% be backing them this season to get into the Champions League. I know that right now, you know, I'm looking at the football headlines and people are getting excited about Newcastle and things like that and I understand why. But look, we've got, Liverpool got six games to go uh, and then it's the World Cup. That's a total unknown for everyone in terms of having a tournament like that in the middle of the season. And who knows what the other side of that season looks like. So all Liverpool have got to concentrate on right now is getting some good results in the interim. Um, you know, getting together, seeing where we are after the World Cup and going from there. And that applies, that applies to every side in the league. So I think it's far too early to be talking about missing out on the Champions League and things like that. You know, you look at how many points are still available to play for. You know, we've only played 11 games this season in the league, uh, 81 points still to play for. So, yeah, I'd say it was far too early to be talking about missing out on the Champions League right now. All right, Gareth, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, boys. Thank you. Gareth Roberts giving us his thoughts there on the situation at Liverpool. Now, Regatta Great Outdoors are launching their new Freddie Flintoff collection this autumn to celebrate. We've got a €100 Regatta voucher to give away every day. 
and one lucky winner will get a €500 Euro voucher. To be with a chance of winning, tell us who this world-famous Premier League manager is, explaining the difficulties that he had convincing Nathan Murphy to appear more on OTBAM. Answer. So, uh, if you force to one person to stay when he doesn't want to stay, how you can get the best of him? It's impossible. impossible. I would love no Impossible. You can tweet us your answer on our main Twitter page at Off the Ball, and remember, shop the Freddie Flintoff collection in store at Regatta Great Outdoors or online at regatta.ie. Why is it so difficult to keep you motivated? Don't know. I'm just you know when when the awards are gone. What's the point? When you're off Broadway, you know I'll come back and peak the three months before the awards, and that's all you need. That's all you need, isn't it? It's just moments, really. Yeah. You're like Stephen Gerrard. Big moments. That's what's important. Exactly, yeah. You don't need it's to. It's not be, about consistency. Don't need to deliver week yeah. in, week out. Everyone remembers the Champions League final. Uh, Ronaldo and the debate. Uh, Gary Neville's getting it in the in the neck from um, the guy in the back of the Telegraph, whose name is Not the guy in the back of the Telegraph again. But actually, wow. I thought he's, it's a good TV reviewer. Actually, it's right here in front of me. I should just Alan Tires. It's actually, you know, it's very good. Uh, he's, he's giving it to Neville saying, <clears throat> in the middle of a debate... When you look at the camera and say, this is great TV. I did find that a bit strange. <clears throat> it kind of, suddenly it, felt like it was a little bit contrived. It takes you out of the moment. Yeah. No, I, I, I did find that a bizarre um, moment. And it did feel as though, did he say that because he was losing the argument and that he felt Keane was playing up to the cameras? It was a very, it, like, it was very entertaining. Uh, uh, the most entertaining part is always when Roy's cutting down other people. I love it. Doesn't need a second opportunity to have a pop at Rio Ferdinand. Uh, no, I, was, I, I have not heard anybody bring up Rio's yeah, missed drug test it, out of it, nowhere. Many years. Like, <laughs> <the> point. <laughs> scolds, scolds. He didn't even bother. Didn't, didn't play. Yeah, Did we hammer him. No, it was like listing all of the BT Sport people as well. I'd yeah. say there was like people going. I mean, we, we didn't even ask him to do this. This is a guy like this guy. Double the salary. <laughs> Gary, you can do as many shows for us as you want, but he's our boy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. It's the usual with Roy. The, but the, the Rio Ferdinand thing seems to be like, whatever you do, do not mention that Rio Ferdinand missed a drugs test and missed eight months. And whose fault was that? His teammates. The managers. It's like, all oh, right. Are we allowed to talk about that? Because it doesn't get mentioned at all, ever, anytime. And Roy's just like casually bringing it up. I think he might be wrong about Ronaldo. I do think it's probably a point, though, that you can bring players back if you want to bring players back. It seems like Ten Hag is using this as a way of getting rid of Ronaldo. As opposed to trying to keep him in? Yeah, but why does he want to keep him in if he's not going to play him? Well, Because <clears throat> so, like, he, he can score goals off the bench like he did last week. Do you know what I mean? They don't have anybody else. Well, but I think if he thought that he would offer an awful lot on the pitch and that he could rely on him to score those goals off the bench all the time, that he would probably keep him. But Ronaldo's not happy. Like no. That's where the it's clash a fair, it's comes a fair point, of... Yeah. Yeah. If you say to Ronaldo, and he may well have had that conversation and said, I want you off the bench to score those goals, he's like... Sorry, but I have to sit for 75 minutes and watch Marcus Rashford miss chances before that. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah, I can no see th- why. Look, we'll come back to this a little bit later on. In the Amber today, obviously, in the Gillette Labs performance rankings, <coughs> was the Republic of Ireland World Cup draw for more reaction to that. I'm delighted to say we've got Kathleen McNamee with us. Kathleen, was it an Amber draw or was it a green draw? Was Nathan being a little bit harsh here? Uh, no, I think you guys are probably being fair about it. I mean, I agreed with most of what Nathan said in terms of the fact that it's a really difficult draw footballing wise, but in terms of the excitement we can build for it, in terms of like the times the games are on, it's absolutely perfect for everything. Um, and I won't lie, like when I watched the draw, I was at a wedding on Friday night. So 
it was a little bit bleary eyed, kind of like one eye open following it on my phone. And as the teams came through, my first initial reaction was, oh, no, these like these are good teams. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, we have we definitely have the capabilities to get some results. I've looked at some of the like international reaction to the draw and basically everyone is saying that we're going to come last in this group. Right. But I don't know. I feel like we could be the one that like trip people up. And I hope that's the case, especially by the time it comes around to next year. Um, it was really disappointing to hear from Vera Powell that like players like Jesu and Ellen Malloy probably won't be back. That was disappointing. But I hope that with the rest of the squad we have, and who knows as well who might come through in the next couple of months, who could provide a really interesting tournament for us. Um, <clears throat> the interview that Vera did with John Duggan on, on Saturday, she spoke about knowing Nigeria very well from her time involved with South Africa. What should we expect from Nigeria? Like, and how good a team are they? They're great. I think this year was the first, it's like only the third ever time that they haven't won WAFCON. Um, they are, uh, I mean, their star player, their kind of Kane McCabe is Aswala. Um, she plays with Barcelona. She is one of their top strikers. She has had a few injury issues over the last year or so, so... Again, not that you would ever wish someone to be injured, but that's the sort of player that we would be watching for and seeing how she performs over the next while. I think what we can expect from Nigeria is a really tough game. In terms of rankings, we're in very different positions, but the majority of their players play in La Liga or Europe. I think they only have one player who actually plays in Nigeria. Everyone else is based outside of the country. So I think what we're getting there is a really attacking, fast style of football. Um, they, I mean, we watch the La Liga a lot more now that Barcelona have kind of become the super power that they have. And, you know, there's quite a few Atletico players on there, a few from Real Betis as well. And they're all just incredibly quick. They're very, very strong on the ball. And I think what we can probably expect is a really tough encounter with them. I think with Australia and Canada, we're going to be coming up against like very, very um, technically minded players because that's how a lot of them play. Whereas with, I think we can get a very gritty match with someone like Nigeria, which I think will be fun to watch. And I hope we would be able to get a result out of it as well. You hope that uh, there'll be still something to play for as well by the time it comes to that Nigeria game. And that'll be reliant on Ireland getting something from the first two matches. Uh, Canada don't have an exceptional record at World Cup finals, but they are the Olympic champions. Uh, they beat Sweden on penalties, and obviously Ireland have also drawn with Sweden. So maybe again, there's some confidence we can take from that. Is that because this is a is this the best generation of Canadian players we've seen? Um, it it definitely is one of the better ones. I think that Olympic win came as a surprise for a lot of people. No one really saw it coming. Uh, obviously, they have some really, really talented players on that team. You know, Christine Sinclair, this is kind of seen as her like swan song tournament. Top 39. Scorer in, yeah. <laughs> Still the top scorer in international football. And she's not doing a Ronaldo on it every week and walking off the pitch in a, in a huff. But um, I think for a player like her, it will be a really interesting tournament to see what she is actually able to do. Because they're bringing up quite a few young players, you know, the likes of... Uh, Jordan Hutima, who played with PSG for ages, and now she's over in the NWSL. Quinn, they, I don't, I think there's been a lot of issues in Canadian football, similar enough in the way that we've probably had our own issues. Like after they won that gold medal, there was a lot of talk for a while that they weren't going to be given, you know, a, a gold medal match back at home where they'd be able to present themselves to the country and be like, hey, look, 
let's do a tour around the place because the Canadian Federation didn't want to give them that. So I think this team has probably achieved in spite of a lot of the things that have gone gone on in the background in their federation. Um, and it's really going to be dependent on which players are coming up. Like I would say that Olympic win was probably more a product of teams like the US and Sweden not performing to their highest ability rather than Canada being particularly outstanding throughout the whole tournament. So <clears throat> their ranking is really, really high. Like... Um... Is that something we should be concerned about? Is that like a bit of an anachronism? Have the world rankings not quite sorted themselves out? Why are they so high? Uh, well, like at the end of the day, they did still win. You can still criticise the fact that, you know, in and around them, the teams might not have been playing too well, but they still have an Olympic gold medal. They still have some of the top players out of that rank. I think they're like, they were the last top ranked team. So like out of all the rankings, they're probably one of the ones you would prefer to face um but i think the thing with the rankings is it's like how do you actually judge these teams i mean we're up in one of our highest ever rankings that's we can see we can see the development for us we can see the progress but as you get to those upper echelons it's really hard to like how do you distinguish like the us are still up there but many people would say that they've had some of their worst couple of years in forever so I think the thing with rankings is always to take them with a pinch of salt. I mean, I think Nigeria are 45th ranked, but I would still expect a tough game from them and I wouldn't expect us to just run away with it even though we're 20 places ahead. So I don't know, it, rankings are just something I never put a massive amount of pressure on because while they'll give you a certain insight, they don't really tell you that much about the ins and outs of a team. Okay. Uh the injury problems that you've talked about, obviously, <clears throat> that they're the long-term injury ones that we might have suspected that uh, we might be unlikely to have recuperation from in time, particularly Jesu. Um, does that create opportunity for other players? Is there a tier who are underneath that level who would be in the squads, who were looking to be bolters for this World Cup squad, who might make the team? Or has Vera Pau largely got a settled squad at this stage of, of players who she knows will do a job for her in the style of play that she wants? I think she has got a pretty settled squad, but I found it interesting over the weekend when she was talking about it and saying that, you know, she had quite a few emails into her inbox about players who are now coming forward with Irish passports. And she said during that interview that she was monitoring quite a few players from abroad and that there are people that she has her sights on and I don't know what she including as well a few of the younger players in the WNL you know the likes of Jesse Stapleton and other people who were like really really performing well and maybe just a bit young at this stage to be brought in um, but I think what we've seen from Vera so far is that when it comes to the bigger game she does have a pretty settled squad she doesn't really like changing that's not anything new I mean that's how she's played her entire career but when she has like uh, opportunity to bring people in for those kind of wider training sessions, she is willing to do it. And I think the fact that those two players, like say the likes of Jesse was out, I do think it provides a massive opportunity. And I think you even look at the the way the WNL is going this season, the matches that there were at the weekend, there's very clearly like a lot of talent in the league. So I think it would be silly at this stage, especially because we don't know who else is going to get injured between now and July next year you know it's we need to have a massive squad depth if we want to be competitive and we need to make sure those players who are maybe on the edges now are given that time in the lead up to the World Cup so that we don't have a situation where say it's like before the game against Scotland and we lose six or seven players 
and suddenly we're going to a World Cup being like, oh no, <laughs> we have these young players, we think they have a bit of talent, but we, we haven't given them enough opportunities. And that's why games like the November International, hopefully we can get someone, hopefully we can get a few more in before the World Cup are so, so important for us. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, Vera Powell was saying, uh, presuming that November International happens, that that would probably be the only chance for players on the fringes to really stake a claim. She didn't seem particularly happy that it was only 23 players in the squad as compared to 26 for the Men's World Cup. That, again, it means injuries. You're very tight in certain positions. And she's generally picked quite big squads of 28, 29 players, albeit sticking quite rigidly to the same 13 or 14 who would end up starting. And also... uh, that she's had a lot of phone calls already uh, from the diaspora who have uh, looked at Ireland qualifying and uh, realised they have a bit of Irish heritage. Now, I see she's quoted saying, if you don't have a passport already, don't bother making that call. But it would be interesting if there are players, uh, I certainly know on the men's side, they've got an unbelievably good scouting system in the UK to realise what players are eligible. If that was a route that they were to go down, I know like Lucy Quinn has come in in the last couple of years. Lily Ag, obviously, it seems, has been trying to work on it for quite a bit of time uh, but I'm sure there are plenty of players there and you know, that's a that's a big decision for Vera Powell to make in terms of could that cause disharmony if you're bringing somebody in from the outside when you have as I say so many players who've been there get them in now get them in now and then you know don't bring them to the World Cup but then use them for the tournament after like I yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what about the group dynamic Even like players like Megan Walsh as well you know we had so many conversations when she first came into the squad is she going to take that place from Courtney Brosnan even though she's been there for so long and kind of like proved her quality and I think she probably would have if only Megan Walsh didn't have that like slight injury early on when she first came in she probably would have taken that spot so it's that weird thing when you watch this squad I know everyone's become incredibly attached to this squad because of what they've qualified and what they've done for us but we're also going to have to place that somewhere and realize that, oh, this might not actually be the squad that goes and chances are probably won't. Like people are going to miss out. People aren't going to go. We're going to have to place that aside somewhere and say, like, look at it quite coldly and be like, OK, well, what's our best chances at actually performing at this tournament? Yeah. Fairness, I think Vera Powell is very capable of looking at a cold <laughs> and yeah. making those someone, big decisions. Someone we like is getting dropped. Kathleen, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. That's uh, Kathleen McNamee there. More from Koi Gig this week. Uh, I was talking to Amber Barrett. We heard a little bit from earlier. Ah, God, she's uh, such such a great speaker. And as we saw post-match, how eloquently she spoke um, about Chrysler. And she spoke about that again on Saturday. I'm sure uh, the clips would be up on social, how she got a message from Leona Harper's father. And uh, Leona Harper, one of the victims of the tragedy, she'd gone to the same school as Amber Barrett, uh, you know, just congratulating her and thanking her for taking the moment and talking about that day and, you know, ringing her mum and saying I just can't get this out of my head before the match at yeah. all like it's all she's thinking about and to be able to go out and score a goal of that importance and to leave the legacy that she will by being able to react that way uh, it's just so hugely impressive uh, for Amber Barrett and I think you know the more you talk to her the happier you are that she got to have that moment yeah but no guarantee that she's going to be in the squad I think she'll be in the squad I think the fact she was first off the bench um, and she can she can play in a, like she's playing right back for her club at the moment right. in Germany so she can play in a few different positions I think it's the sort of probably anyone from sort of 18, 19 on who has been in squads on the benches but not getting a lot of game time will be the ones who are a little bit worried Alright we're going to play a clip of her scoring uh, talking about scoring the goal in just a second a reminder OTBAM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent Mo.
You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. Alan Quinlan is next up, but here is Amber Barrett talking about the goal. Enjoy. Your memory of the thought process that you went through in that probably, what was five seconds? Yeah, to be honest with you, I I can't, you know, I could tell you this unbelievably detailed, lucrative idea that I had when the ball came to me, but I think the only thing that I do clearly remember was to get the first touch out of my feet, which sometimes can, it can either land in the goalkeeper's arms or it can land perfectly, and very fortunate that it did, Um, but, you know, it's not just the first touch. I think you have to roll it back to the header from Fahey to cushion it down to Denise. I think I've watched that more times than anything because, you know, it's just a perfectly weighted header back. And, it's you know, it's it's those little moments that all add, add up into it. And then, of course, then as soon as Denise gets on the ball and half turns, as soon as she I actually saw on the there was a slowed down version video that had, had been doing the rounds. And it's funny because as soon as De, Denise gets it, I'm gone. And as soon as Denise turns, she looks up and I'm just like, those are moments that, you know, you can't, that's just a pure instinct, you know, from, from my side. And also Denise said she knew exactly where she wanted to play the ball. And I knew exactly where I was going to run. And I think honestly, after the first touch, I remember when the first touch went ahead, I said in my head, I was like, you, you, I said, you're going to score because I always do believe when I get a chance, I'll score. Um, But the rest of it, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't remember. I think, there was also part of me was considering that we had done a lot of um, video analysis with the goalkeeper and they said that she's quite reluctant at times to come off her line. And I knew that it's, it wasn't going to be one of those where, you know, she's going to be coming out and you're going to have her to deal with on the, the centre back. So I knew I had a little bit of time in that regard. But when it came to finishing it off, I had no idea. I just, I told poked it and that's the late. And from my point of view, from the first contact, it looked that it was going outside the post. But you know, you know, you talk about that five seconds. I tell you, from when that ball left my foot to when it went in, honestly, it felt like three hours. It was so long. And then it was just the rest. Honestly, I can only describe it as magic. Right. Alan Quinlan is with us. It's 8.55 if you're watching us on OTBAM Live this morning or if you listen to the podcast a little bit later, you're very welcome. Now, Alan, uh, I'm reading a lot of positive things about Munster. It's, uh, I'm unused to watching people praise Munster in defeat. So... Are we right to be doing that, given the injury profile that they had? Or um, I, I do sometimes think, what would Roy Keane say in this situation? It's the exact same thing I was thinking all weekend myself. What, what would he say? Um, yeah, I think they're right, to, given the circumstance and where they're at. Um, I think they got a fair bit of flack in the first couple of weeks of the season, and very deservedly so. I think this um, the problem here is is the previous coach and staff um, I think what they've left behind and that's slowly starting to trickle out regarding standards fitness levels, culture um, I wouldn't say a lack of effort because you know no, there's, there's there's a lot of decent honest players have been there in the last number of years and they've, they've kind of got near that final hurdle a lot um, but I think the overall picture um is kind of coming home to roost now. So there's no point in kind of having a go at the current group. But are you able to separate Graham Roundtree from all that? Yeah, because I know what I've no, I know some I know that the problems have been going on for a number of years. Um, I know that um, probably the alarming thing as well as as um, this is in the personal attack on Johan van Gran. Um, 
he was offered a new new contract last year. What, what, where would we be? At least, uh, I think this thing needed to stop. It needed to be dissected. And look, I said that a number of years ago. Again, I, I hate kind of repeating myself, but I end up repeating myself about that. Um, every regime, every organisation, every business should be continuously looked at. How we're getting, how we're getting on, how we improve, what we, we need to do, what's the culture like. Are the staff kind of dropping their standards a little bit? Do we need to have a night out? Do we need to train harder? Do we need to push more? All that kind of stuff. So that's common practice. Um, but when your neighbours up the road are continuously talking about culture, um, the environment, the drive, the desire, the standards, and obviously producing the quality, which is, you know, has been second to none for Leinster they have all the players they have and the systems they have and you know they've set a great standard you hear teams across Europe talking about them you hear the South African teams talking about them and that's the reality that's where they're at I think a club like Munster should be better um, it should be looked at more it should have been looked at more and maybe people took their eyes off the ball again to be fair to the hierarchy in Munster you know R.G. Snyman Damien Dialenda. Graham Roundtree, Stephen Larkham, there was excitement, you know, before that World Cup when they were announced. This was kind of the turning point. But the game is moving on and moving on all the time, right across the board, regarding your skills on the ground, your fitness levels, your ability to catch pass, all those things that we maybe take for granted. But really good quality coaching continues. And you saw what Joe Schmidt did with Ireland. Um... You know, if you give players detail and they demand detail and they should demand that detail all the time, the top internationals want to be coached. They mm. want to be challenged. And I think, obviously, I'm going off track a little bit here, but I think the reason there's no need to do, you know, completely slate this group is because it's a reality. Looking back, a lot of the problems were allowed to fester and get worse. Imagine if they'd kept the old regime. It's a good point that you raised that I have largely forgotten about. Like they wanted to give him a new deal. He left us. Yeah, and look, I, I was, and, and I'm not, I'm not being the one who's um, being sharp after the event here and saying, oh yeah, because at the time I thought we, 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 we were seeing certain kind of green shoots of the attack. The Claremont game stands out to me there in Europe where they, you know, they did brilliant away win in Europe and, and they threw caution to the wind a bit when they were way behind in the game and they came back and won it. You know, we haven't seen enough of that. The attack hasn't been good enough. The basic skills. And if you look back in the last number of years, we've seen so much box kicking, one-out runners, uh, bland rugby that does not win you games when you get to quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. You have to attack. So if you give a number of years training players not to attack, like being brave and seeing what's in front of them, playing what's in front of them. So there's a lot of that stuff that's gone on. There's a lot of players who haven't been good enough that have been playing, um, need to prove themselves. There's been a lot of two and three year contracts given to people that needs to be questioned and looked at. Um, I've said this many times as well. In my when I got into my thirties, it was a lot of my last three years were one year contracts. What happens with Gerald when you get a one year contract? You play your eyes out. Well, if you get a two year contract, so not you don't make this decision consciously that well it's grand now and cosy. You feel that way. 
But sometimes you can drop a little bit and say, well, I'm not going in the extra 10 or 15 minutes or the half an hour earlier. You know, I'm okay here. And six months now, the contract's up. I got to start really kind of being conscious. It can happen anybody. So um, what we saw on Saturday night was minimum requirement when you put on a Munster jersey, in my opinion, heart, fight, passion. I saw, and I think anybody who's a rugby person saw you know, the quality and the difference in the subs that were coming on. When you look at Porter, Conan coming on for Leinster, it's phenomenal. We know that. So that's the reality. The players who started, the injuries they have. Leinster have had in- have injuries as well, but they can cope. So, But it's the other thing, though. It's layering on top of that. Did you see a game plan and an attacking intent yes, and yeah. a desire not to just yeah. play? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And um, I think... Joey Carberry going half was it kind of disrupted things a little bit because um, I thought he's been he was really good against the Bulls and he was really good the other night under massive pressure Yeah, at times he was getting the ball it was a wall of Leinster players coming at him because you know they weren't um, they were able to do that I think look with respect to the two centres they haven't played together they haven't played at a higher level together you're coming up against Henshaw and Ringrose Henshaw's just Ringrose is just picking gaps siding through players you know Munster don't have Fekitoa they don't have Chris Farrell they don't have Anton Frisch they're three really good players and there's a lot of positive talk and uh, about Frisch and what he can bring Chris Farrell we don't know when we'll see him again you know so you're you're really down to the bare bones and same in the back three players so it what's it's what separate players and I know they had injuries as well James Lowe and Hugo Keenan and you know Gibson Park and there's probably a load of more that Josh van der Fleer wasn't there Kelleher you can name loads of Leinster players but they have the depth but Munster showed some glimpses the other night of what they're trying to do and what was most pleasing for me is they didn't fold um, from the week before and not just didn't fold it wasn't this oh keep the ball tight they actually tried to play a bit so I, I can say the culture is changing at, well, at 22-13 <coughs> Munster are attacking and, and it's 73-74 minutes they're the ones that are kind of trying incredible defence and Leinster it's very hard to break them down so they make a mistake turn the ball over they go up the field piece of brilliance from, from Ring Rose with the offload out of the tackle and they score to stretch it out to 27-13 did Leinster butcher chances? Yes. Should they have scored more? Yes. But Munster kind of defended and made it really difficult at times for him. So um, there is positives to take out of it. Thomas Ahern, John Hodnett, I think Jack Crowley. We're starting to see the real Jack Crowley, what he's capable of. I love the fact that at times he, he'd Leinster people in front of him, even coming from full, coming from full back, that he can step. He'd find a little bit of space. He's a brilliant ball player. Um and you can see that the emerging Ireland stuff has done him the world of good. He's a big, strong, physical guy as well. So I think he's he's a real positive. But they are down to the bare bones and they've got more injuries again. We're waiting for news on, on Carberry. Um, we don't know. Is there any... No, I don't know. And I think they probably won't really know the full extent of it um, until until Monday. He didn't look like he was going off holding his arm or was dislocated or it looked like more of a bang or a knock or fingers crossed it's a stinger. Yeah, hopefully hopefully it's okay for him. But um he's he wouldn't be available next week anyway because all the internationals are gone, but it's more for I suppose for the November internationals. But um it was a strange atmosphere there on Saturday because even meeting Leinster people they were 
they're kind of half nervous about what pity, would they give me a bit Blake. of slagging yeah and look that is sad Nathan that it's gone to that And but that is our reality as I said this is 10 games Munster have won one of these now in the last 10 so the you know in the in the league the last time they won was 2018 so um, if we had this kind of slowing the game down box kicking stuff on Saturday night that would have infuriated me and the Munster fans but when you talk about those young players, um, Adogbo, Ruan Quinn is 19 years of age coming off the bench. That gives us gives you hope. Yeah, okay. Plus, and I, I say this again, plus the game. Yeah, so game most, most important is that the culture is changing and those young players all seem like they're but, capable of influencing it. They still have issues. Way. They need to get people in the front row and, and more depth across the board. Yeah, okay. Uh, question from Mark Dunning very early on in the show this morning, so hopefully you're still watching. Hi all, what did you make of the positioning of Frawley for Leinster on Saturday? Do you think it's a hint that Farrell is thinking of matching the box 6-2 split on the bench with Frawley covering the back line? Could well be. Um, I don't know if um, it's 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 some it, it's not the policy of Ireland to do that, is it? Um, but I thought Frawley played really well, and every time I see him, I think he's an intelligent footballer. He runs brilliant lines, um, and I think he's the one that maybe could slip in as as if Carberry was out now, he could be in it as as your replacement ten. Um, which wouldn't be a big surprise, but he's a really, really good player. Um, really intelligent the way he runs, and he's that kicking option as well. Um, I don't know if that'll happen. I don't think Andy Farrell will do that. Is it worth experimenting with that just to see what happens? Like, you know, we never do it. Maybe in a World Cup, you might need to do it once. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it may November be. It and may be. And if you put a. Um, it's kind of like sometimes I make the. I, I think about the decision of p- playing. Um, doing the 6-2 split is if, if you have this incredibly two dynamic back row players you're picking your second row obviously right yeah. and then you have these two guys that you go Jesus I, I don't know which one of them to pick uh, they both if you unleash the two of them straight onto the field at one time they would make a difference like Conan and O'Mahony Conan yeah, and Flair. yeah yeah but yeah yeah Exactly. Even in Timoney or something like that, just to come on and be really abrasive, you know. Yeah. And he's played really well for for um, for for Ulster as well. So um, yeah, it's may, it may be something that they would look at doing. I, you got to experiment now, right? For like, I don't think it's something you have to practice. So do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's something nice you can do. Most is it? Yeah, but like obviously you would put. Let's see what our bomb squad is like versus their bomb squad. Yeah, well, their <clears> bomb squad is fairly big, yeah, isn't yeah. it? You know? Maybe you don't bring a bomb squad to the bomb squad. A knife to a gunfight. Ryan Baird as well as someone, you yeah, know, yeah. back row. If Burn, if Henderson started, you know, if you brought in another second row, would you put Tyg Burn there as well? So there's, there's a couple of options there. Baird could be your second row sub if Tyg Burn is in the back row and then you could still have yeah. three in the back row. I don't know. So you don't you don't think six two splits a, a thing for Ireland? No, I don't think it's a it would be a policy as regards, but I think it's certainly something that um, you know obviously wouldn't it's it, it's something that maybe they they could look at and do. Depends if if they have a lot of players available, and it will come down to that kind of split decision that you're you're kind of thinking who will who will I leave out here, and then you go well. Um, for all you've been able to slot in at full back again, underlines the difference for the individuals in the two teams, like and the sort of systemic culture issues in Munster that like Carberry still it almost feels like a referendum every time he plays on his future and his positioning whereas Frawley can just go into a game like that slot in a full back you know he's got all these incredibly talented gifted players around him and 
can perform that, to the best. That's, that, that's the advantage, isn't it? When you have, you just said it, all these gifted, talented players around him. Um, I've always said this when I played with Munster. If, if you're bringing in a young fella and you're, you're, you, you want to try and play him with 12 or 13 of the starters and then make him really feel, God, not overall, but this is, we're here to look after him and protect him and stuff like that. Sometimes when Carberry's at full back, it's kind of needs most. We saw that um, a couple of weeks ago. It's it's because you're, you've no back three players. Your forwards under pressure. You're not really sure where your strength is, where you're going to dominate in the game. You know, Frawley can sit back there, and he had a pretty, I wouldn't say a difficult time on Saturday night. He had a lot of time. Even at one stage, the counter attack from Leinster, I was like, oh Jesus, they're going to go straight through Munster here because. Munster were out on their feet at one stage in the first half from defending then they're trying to get a kick chase line and it's just all fractured and it's really difficult to put any pressure on the back three so um, obviously the internationals would be different and you're going to be tested more but I think he has that ability and I think Andy Farrell my cat um, they believe he's he's someone can slot in to a couple of different positions there and do really well for him The November internationals are going to be genuinely interesting to see what impact the injuries have on who they go for next like Matt Hansen was sensational for Connacht just recently so you'd say he'll come back into the team given the injuries they have in the back three but after that is there room for experimentation how much experimentation is there do they try the, the, the world class centre partnership that Leinster had I mean when they play together like that you're like well you can't really drop them but at the same time then you know you have to take take it they, they'll be judged when they play for Ireland do you know what I mean Against South Africa, I, I think yeah. Stuart McCluskey is someone that that you know has I just think the last kind of 12 to 14 months he's been really really consistently good he looks fitter he looks sharper and do you bring him for a World Cup where there's games well there's no Bundiaki now for, for the first couple of games in November so yeah. You know, if they're not feed into that problem that he's going to play Henshaw and Ringrose against South Africa and Australia and then McCluskey will come in for the Fiji game but he's going he to be playing really with the other backup yeah, centre yeah, and will be Johnny Sexton I'd be leaning that way of but then the problem is the South African game is they're coming together as a group I know a lot of the Leinster players play but it's you're trying to organise different calls different systems again whereas I think maybe the Australia game is an opportunity to do something like that but Although, against South Africa, you're having that physicality and yeah. stuff. Can and we, it's not can a worry. We, can we try Ringrose on the wing? Like, <clears throat> we've been talking about this, I'd say, for four years. Let's just try him on the wing. He could be... He the, could play there, no problem. But um, he, he could also be, like, an absolutely world-class winger. And then you can get another centre. Aki, even Henshaw and Ringrose on the field all at once, which... Um, yeah, or really, Frawley. Really work, yeah. You can stick Frawley in at 12. In as a 12 as well. You know, you suddenly... Then it's, like, really... Because there's been bits and games where he's popped up on the wing, and I don't know if it's um, Leinster just saying okay, or if it's just kind of as the the game flows. But like he's got game smarts that are off the charts. So like, it'd be brilliant to get to a position where if there was four or five changes in the Irish team, that you go, and that's the idea of it, isn't it? That you go, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm not really bothered. That's a really good team on paper, and I'm comfortable with yeah. that. Um, and that's probably the key now in this period and probably through the Six Nations I think Balakun coming into the team could do that for you in the back three um, McCluskey hopefully yeah. can do that um, Craig Casey if Gibson Park doesn't play you know will he come in and start and 
is he matured and developed after yeah. New Zealand as well? So, um, yeah, there's definitely that. That's what you want. You want to try and get those four or five players. If South Africa made three or four changes, maybe two in their backfield and one or two forwards, we kind of go, Jesus, that's still a very strong side. And yeah. these guys have played because Nienenbar rotates a fair bit, you know, throughout the rugby championship did, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I think that we probably need a little bit of that, possibly. Um, I know there's a drive to win these internationals every time. I think the Six Nations, people often ask for change in Six Nations. We only see it in the Italian match. The other games are incredibly important. Well, uh, yeah, there are, the money they make from the Six Nations prize money is, it turns out, very important to the RFU. And they What I suspect will happen here is the strongest team will be picked against South Africa. Then there'll be obviously a lot of changes because there's the A game the day before and, you know, the Irish management are coaching them as well. There's not a different set of coaches. So on the Friday night before South Africa, Andy Farrell, Paul O'Connell, Easterby, um, all the other coaches, John Fogarty, they're going, my cat, they're going, they're coaching this A team as well. So it's going to be kind of a busy week for them, getting them right. They play against New Zealand. Um, and I think that's a great fixture, that A game. It's a great fixture the night before. It's having guys in camp, having the buzz of that game at the weekend against a strong pretty strong New Zealand team. They're in the so. same Ireland extended Ireland yeah, camp and yeah. so it'll be a massive camp. Is that how yeah, that works? Yeah, okay. exactly. And that's largely going to be the same Emerging Ireland or is it a mix? No, it'll be it'll be a mix. Obviously guys off the bench it'll probably be twenty. the first 24, 5, 6 players maybe there'll be one or two held back and it, it'll be the rest will be playing in that A game but you would think there'll be some guys there have have a lot to gain by playing playing in that that side and certainly longer term the possibilities yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, okay was there anything from Leinster's performance that you're thinking uh, a little bit more efficiency there lads uh, you know obviously taking the Munster hat off from Leinster's perspective they cross the line in the first forty four seconds but don't get don't get the try and you're like oh this is going to be one-way traffic here. I think when they analyse the game, Ger, I think they will look at uh, a couple of times they didn't put the ball through the hands and they could have scored. Um, There was definitely two or three opportunities there and look, everybody can go back and look at that if they want. I think they'll be frustrated and I think if they start pulling away a little bit there, it could get a little bit ugly. Um, But... The, f- the scramble defence and the effort from Munster, they kind of created that situation. It had a sense that even though Munster were stretched and they were getting line breaks at times, that Munster were going to get back and um, dismantle them. But when they look back at it, and their own, as regards their own standards, they need to be better if they want to, you know, when it comes to the business end of it, because you're going to get that against the South African teams you, if, if they match you physically. Um, so I thought that a lot of what they did, and maybe Leinster getting a bit of criticism here, a lot of what they did was really good. Um, and they still won. Yeah, they still won comfortably in the end. But in that period, I think Leo Cullen even said it himself, when you're getting into the kind of 72nd, 3rd, 4th minute, and Le- Munster the ones attacking, and there's only 8 points in it. Is it, is it 8 or 9 points? Um it's not ideal because okay. you know when you're so supposed to win you want to win on. well yeah. don't you that that feel good so they got the bonus points but I think they need to be better as well okay Quinny good stuff thanks a million Cheers. thanks it's uh, 16 minutes past 9 this morning we're brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today Colin Gooch Cooper at 1 o'clock Splunk at 3 the classic is our documentary series 
about the time that Wimbledon nearly became a Dublin club. OTB Gold is Manu Petit and OTB is live with Joe in the hot seat from 7 o'clock tonight. We're back next with Daniel Harris reacting to Manchester United's draw with Chelsea and the Ronaldo situation and obviously uh, we've got some news through on Varane's injury as well. First though, Amber Barrett, we've already spoken about, has been speaking with Nathan and she touched on the tragic events in Chrysler as she paid tribute to those involved. Honestly, it's something that happened very naturally. Again, um, I had been speaking to mum on the morning of the game and, you know, I'd said, Mum, I just, I said, Mum, I know I have a huge game tonight, but I said, just, I can't get Chrysler out of my head. And she said, you know, Amber, come on now. Look, you know, I know, I know you're sad and everything. She goes, but you just need to park it for the day and just, you know, get over. But like, I don't think I ever did. I think even, you know, going into the warm up, going back into the dressing room, you know, the black armbands were hanging up, being told there was going to be a minute silence. And I think that just, it was just constantly on my mind, you know, not always at the front of my mind, but it was always there in the back of my head. And to be honest with you, like I still don't, um, I still have to admire what what happened when the goal went in because you know I'm never, never usually that calm. And I think to just be that calm in that moment, I think was the only way that was suitable for what happened to Donegal and what happened over the last few days. And I think it wasn't planned, um, but you know. In, in a way, I'm glad that my natural instinct was to do something like that because it's such a small moment. But to pay any respect to all of those people that unfortunately passed away is, I think it's only the it's only the smallest thing you can do. But you know, I've I've heard a lot about it. That people have appreciated it. Um, one of the the parents of one of the the young girls that died, Leona Harper, her father contacted me a couple of days after and. That that really kind of that took me, you know, that really knocked me a wee bit for six, and just to say, you know, how how grateful they were and that they really appreciated it. And I think then just, you know, it's brilliant we qualify for a World Cup, but you know, in terms of perspective, it's it's not the most important thing in the world, really. OTB AM. Right, ninety minutes past nine. Daniel Harris is with us. Daniel, good morning to you. Hello. This is the age of uh, Casemiro. It's finally, it only took like four months for the manager who signed him to, um, you know, stick him in the team. And lo and behold, he's world class. Yeah, it has turned out that he's good after all. Um, I always think it's a bit weird with players like Casemiro. I thought this when United signed Cavani as well, where people think that they're coming for the money, which might be the case. But when you have these lads who basically sacrificed the entirety of their youth to be good at football... And that is basically what you have to do to be good at football. When all your mates are having a good time, you're going to bed early and all the rest of it. The idea that they will suddenly morph into people who just turn up and collect their wages rather than rather than do what they've always done before that is is quite a weird one. I mean, I'm sure it does happen. And Can the Cavani just not stop turning up then? I'm not sure what happened to Cavani in the second season, but I'm, I'm not saying it would never happen. I'm just saying that it is a strange position to take to think that someone is going to change the way that they've lived their life for two decades, more or less, to suddenly become something that they're not. And I mean, I, I actually I thought I wondered if it was just me, if I was just created this straw man in my head. So I did I did a Twitter search for Casemiro and Payday. And there was quite a lot of conjecture on this point. But I think also when people saw him play the first few games, he looked, he looked a bit off the pace, which I guess was one of the reasons Ten Hag didn't select him until then. But we've seen in the last couple of weeks that it turns out that he is actually 
quite good at football after all. And we all saw his reaction to the goal. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was a, it was a brilliant header. I, I, you know, let's hope from Manchester United's perspective that they get at least two seasons, two more years, two and a half years uh, of this level of performance with Casemiro. It's really something to build a team around. They appeared until Varane went off injured again to have a centre-back partnership. But at least... Uh, they have one centre-back who also looks good. So there's there's the building blocks of a team here and there's a strategy around the signings. And again, you know, it's not perfect and we'll, we'll get to the issues in a moment. But certainly this is about as positive, I suspect, as most Manchester United fans have felt in a long time. Uh, yeah, because I think what Tenach has done is he signed... He, it looks like he... It's early days, so you don't want to start... I mean, at this point, a few a few years ago, we still thought Angel Maria might be Di Maria might be a good signing. So don't don't want to get too excited too quickly. But what it does look like is he signed a really good players who, apart from Casemiro, who've got a lot of space to improve because they're young, but also the mentality is absolutely bang on. If you look at Lissandro uh, Martinez, if you look at Anthony they strike me as players with the mentality that Fergie would have signed them. They're players who want the ball, who never hide, who are absolutely committed to what they're doing. And even if you... They'll they'll make mistakes because all players do. I mean, United should have won really against Chelsea and they got punished in a way they didn't against Tottenham for not scoring when they were on top. And I mean, Anthony should have scored that chance in the same way he had a chance he should have scored against Tottenham as well. But what, what you see with those players with the right mentality is it doesn't affect them and they keep coming back for more and they want the next chance. And Anthony in particular, what I really like about him is he always wants to take the ball. And if you want to take the ball from him, he's happy to turn it into a scuffle. You have to actually take the ball away from him. He won't try and not get to the ball or go with it with his little toe. He'll put himself about. And that is something that's been sorely missing from United over the last few seasons. Yeah, they're nasty little. Like, there's a bit of niggle about it. particular. Martina, uh, Martinez, Anthony as well though. Like for a very, very lean, skinny guy, you know, in that first match he played, like there was, he wasn't afraid, you say, to get into a scuffle, to get into a bit of a scrap. Casemiro has that naturally. Even Malasia, who they brought in, I know he's dropped out now for sure, but he had that fight in him as well, and that's something United have massively lacked. That actually just be difficult to play against. Yeah, if you see uh, when when the equaliser goes in, there's some footage uh, on the internet, obviously that uh, Anthony's running over to the celebration, but on his way, he sticks his face in Jorginho's face and laughs at him as he's, as, as he's on his way. And, I mean, as football supporters, everyone likes to see that kind of thing, despite it being exactly the kind of thing that no one wants to see. <laughs> Put on your commentary. Oh, out. that's terrible. Oh, What's he doing? Yeah, uh, see that? <laughs> yeah, we are I remember there. it happened to United one, like, years ago. I think it was in 07, 08, it must have been. United played Arsenal and they drew two all, but Arsenal equalised in the last second. And Fabregas goes up to Rio Ferdinand on his way to celebrate with his mates and laughs at him and starts screaming in his face. And that's the kind of needle that we all like, that we're doing it to our mates in the playground and we're doing it on Sundays, Sunday mornings when we're playing. And it's that level of nastiness, like you say, that is part of what makes football great because football has an edge to it. And that's one of the reasons we fell in love with it. And when you see your your team's players behaving in that manner, it it brings people together. And uh, there's also another great photo of uh, when, when the goal goes in, Martinez is there in the, in the bundle celebrating and he's got this bloke by the collar, um, a, a supporter. And then on Twitter, Martinez says, don't, like, don't, retweets the photo saying, don't know who you are, but we're all on the same side. And the bloke replies saying, oh, I love you, mate. <laughs> and it's just those kinds of things. And it's so 
it's almost pathetic in its way. It makes us into babies, but at the same time, it's really nice to have that regression because provided it's all on the right side of the line, that's what that's what football's about. And it's kind of like it's almost like a ritual. Martinez says said it to the guy. The guy responds. Um, it's almost like a ritual because we've seen it played out before. But at the same time, it's a different. It's like a real incarnation of joy that football brings us right. to behave in a way that we would not ordinarily behave in any other in any other walk of life and that's we need that we need to go and act like lunatics every now and again yeah and uh, uh you know obviously in the, in the best positive way best possible way when it's positive 100 percent. and it, the, the transformation in old trafford is like very remarkable from the start of the season and where we are now that's the hallmark of a manager at least who has got to grips with the situation and again is convincing the players that there is a long-term plan there is a long-term strategy he's got so many players in the first team now are, who are his guys or who have had to fight their way back in to be his guy I'm thinking Luke Shaw in particular has started to play a good bit better as well and I, again that, that goes back to that sense of positivity around him uh, Colm, our producer, is a Manchester United fan. He's making the point that um, they are tactically better at the moment. Do you agree with that? Are they tactically better? Do they look like a team? Yeah, you can see that they look like they know what they're doing. They've started moving the ball out of defence again. You're seeing the fullbacks constantly moving inside. And they're building relationships in the team because he's been quite careful about not changing it too much. And that enables you to that enables the players to build relationships. Even on even under Ole, I remember speaking to um, Paul McGuinness, who's a coach, who's a uh, Wilf's son, and he he was saying that the main difference he felt between between the United and the teams they were trying to catch was just time. That Liverpool and City, their players have been together for been playing together for several years by that point, and then you get those automatisms because everyone knows what everyone else is going to do. And that means that you can play in a more fluent way. And you're seeing that with these players, that they're taking on board the instructions and they're obviously rehearsing them in, in, in training. And then they're, they're, you go onto the pitch, they work, and then you want to do them again. And one, one, one of the main differences also is that for years, United have had no right flank. So teams teams knew that you could let Juan Bissaka have the ball. He was unlikely to do anything with it. There was no one that wanted to play on the right wing. United wanted everything down the left. And so you could sort of forget about one side of the pitch. That's not the case anymore because Dallow's playing really well. He had a nightmare in the derby, but otherwise been excellent. He was excellent against Tottenham. He was excellent again at the weekend. And uh, Anthony is someone who he knows where he's going to be. He's going to be on the touchline and he's going to try and move in field. And that means if you know what people are going to do, then, then you can plan for that. And we knew that Ten Hag was a tactician. And... I, I, it reminded me the game against Chelsea actually reminded me a game sorry the game against Tottenham last week in the midweek reminded me a game I saw Spurs play against Everton when um, Pochettino had just taken over and I hadn't watched every game up till then so maybe it was only really revolutionary for me but I just I was watching the game I was covering it for, for the Guardian and um, I thought what on earth is this because Tottenham just absolutely ran Everton off the pitch they wiped the floor with them physically they wiped the floor with them technically and it was like something completely different and I watch United every week so I felt like the performance against Tottenham was I'd seen the building blocks of it even when they drew in Newcastle last weekend I wasn't I, I wasn't sitting there thinking this is rubbish what on earth is going on because I could see that it was an improvement on the previous game that was an improvement on the previous game when they were chasing the game they didn't panic they kept doing the same things and they made loads they made some really good chances in the last 20 minutes and it looked like a goal was coming it didn't come and the game against Tottenham felt like them setting a standard saying this is how well we can play 
And the manager said it afterwards, but you're not allowed to drop below that now. And Chelsea felt like another building block on top of that, where they dominated Chelsea for most of the first half, didn't take their chances, and that's something that has to come. But you can see the building blocks of a team where... When that happens, it feels like you're in a position to start getting results when you're not playing well. And this was something they didn't quite have under Ole all the time, where if they didn't play well often, they got beaten because they didn't have a really solid method of playing to fall back on when the individual brilliance wasn't working. They scored loads and loads of brilliant goals under Ole, loads of bangers, hardly any crap goals, because those are the kind of goals you get when you're playing... in a slightly more stuffy manner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It goes back to what Gareth Roberts to... was saying about Liverpool, that Liverpool at their best, it was the same sort of goal they scored all the time, whereas now there's no real pattern to the types of goal they scored. They're just sort of going off somebody's ass and something exceptional happens, whereas yeah. at their best, everything was preordained, it seemed. Yeah, I think because with Liverpool, what, what happened really is that the main thing with this Liverpool team for me, apart from age, which is one of those things that happens and they the board aren't giving Klopp the money he needs to refresh the team properly, was when they swapped uh, Wijnaldum for Thiago. Because if you think about how Liverpool play, I know Thiago's a better player than Wijnaldum, but if you think about how Liverpool play, basically it's quite simple. I mean, you can overcomplicate it, and I'm sure the way that Klopp organises the pressing is way beyond our footballing comprehension because no one's ever explained it to us and he'll never allow anyone in to watch the pressing. So I'm not saying I'm not saying it's nonsense at all, but just the method of Liverpool play was they had three massive athletes in midfield, Fabinho, Henderson and Wijnaldum most of the time. They could run you off the pitch in midfield, they could win the ball high up the pitch. That meant that the fullbacks could basically act as playmakers and you couldn't do that much behind them in the space that they left because you couldn't get the ball. And it meant that the wide attackers, Salah and Mane, would be able to attack the box because you get the width from the fullbacks. Then as soon as you swap Wijnaldum for Thiago, the balance of that team changes because Thiago is a passer. He's also not fit that often. It means that you can't run the players off. You can't run the opposition off the pitch in the same way. And it means that those spaces behind the fullbacks are available and teams have been absolutely smashing Liverpool in that area. And that, that manner of playing has gone and the team's evolving, but it's not evolved fast enough or with the financial backing to make you able to win those games in that stuffy way, like you say. But United are a young team and they still they still need some adjustments. I mean, if they had a proper centre-forward, they would have won that Chelsea game really easily. Well, um, well, well, but well, One thing to keep an eye on before you talk about Ronaldo is the fixture list. United have played everybody already, even in the last week. You know, Newcastle, Tottenham, Chelsea, three of the other contenders for the top four they beat Arsenal they beat Liverpool they were obviously humiliated by Manchester City now they have a different run of fixtures so the three games between now and the World Cup break are West Ham Aston Villa and Fulham and then the three games straight after are Forest, Wolves and Bournemouth Ooh, six wins well but different types of teams will set up very different to the best sides and you know the counter-attacking football that United play at times can they be a team that totally dominate possession control those games there's a big opportunity though for them in that run of fixtures at least yeah, they, I agree. At least they have a manager who will like uh, take that and think, I'm going to have to do something different. Yeah, I mean, well, what, what, what you saw against Chelsea was slightly different to what you saw against Tottenham because um, um, Tenach exchanged Fred Ferrickson. And then I, I, I didn't think he would do that. Watching the Spurs game, and I'd wondered it even when United signed Ericsson, whether actually Ericsson would get into United's best team, even though I know he's a beautiful, excellent player. Because what Fred gave United against Tottenham was was tempo. 
um, that United were able to win the ball high up the pitch and play at a really quick tempo because they had some physicality there. So I actually thought, I was actually wondering if United United's first 11 actually would have Fred in it because he's really good at winning the ball high up the pitch and enabling them to play at speed. Um, but then he brought, uh, Ericsson played against Chelsea and they were still able to do that. And Ten Hag is building a possession team. And what you saw against Chelsea in particular is the positions the fullbacks take up. And it seems it's almost like a hybrid of what Guardiola does and what Klopp does because you've got that sort of speed and physicality of Klopp but you've got that Guardiola trying to overpopulate the midfield to make sure that you dominate possession. And that's something that United haven't had in any of the Fergie years. And even even before Fergie, I remember talking to a friend before the game against Chelsea, and I said, I haven't said this probably since about 2011, but I don't think Chelsea are going to be able to cope with United in midfield. Because even at the end of the Fergie years, you know, Fergie didn't buy a midfielder between Owen Hargreaves and Nick Powell. And... He basically, towards the end, when the Glazers were giving him very little money, he pretty much he relied on having a great defence and loads of attacking options, loads of wingers, loads of strikers, who he could use depending on the situation of the game. But they didn't have as good a level of midfield control as the great teams had had before that. Whereas what you're seeing now is Casemiro, Eriksen, Bruno... Uh, with the fullbacks are actually starting to control the ball and control the game against good teams. They didn't quite have it against Arsenal. Like, it wasn't a stuffy win, I wouldn't say, but they could, on a different day, they could have lost that game. Arsenal played pretty well that day. But what you're seeing now in the last few weeks, you saw it against Newcastle, you saw it against Tottenham, you saw it against Chelsea, is that they're starting to dominate the ball and they're starting to do it against good teams. And that is the advantage of having... Uh, a centre-back like Martinez, who's always trying to pass the ball forward, yeah. and has that combination that is very rare. He's really aggressive, but he's not wild, and he's really composed, but he's also got really good football intelligence, and he's always trying to pass the ball forward. He's working out. Yeah. Yes, he's, and then you've got someone like Casemiro, who just obviously knows what you have to do on a football pitch and is always trying to control the game and keep the ball. And then you have a passer like Ericsson, and you've got Bruno, who... Who who's learned who's learning a new a slightly new position, but the last two games show that it feels like he's understood it now. Yeah, felt a, yeah. Felt a bit like he was the fir- the first few games he was he was struggling a little bit because he'd previously been the guy who everything goes through. Then all of a sudden you've actually got he's got some good players around him or coaching or coaching. That's um, the other thing. He might just be being asked and told what to do and given a, a feedback loop as opposed to you're creative you go out there and do it you give us some big moments and everybody's gonna everybody's gonna respond to you you know um, so <clears throat> the tactically anarchic uh, thing that was out there about him might only have been under that regime I do yeah, have to, I agree. I do have to ask you about Ronaldo sorry we're nearly out of time uh, yeah. and I want to get to him before we go um like it, it looks to me we, we were having this conversation earlier like uh, Ten Hag may well have mismanaged the situation or else he's managing it exactly how he wants he wants he wants the rest of the world to get to the point where they see that Ronaldo has no future at Manchester United and so therefore the only thing is a breakup. it's like a, he's been breadcrumbing this for such a long period of time you know I couldn't possibly bring him on in the derby because it would have humiliated him and then he won't <laughs> even come on Do you know there's like he, he's either He's either a, a genius and has played this perfectly because what he wants is Ronaldo out of the club or he's missing an opportunity to have somebody who might be worth coming off the bench for the last half an hour in those games against Chelsea. Yeah, I think he's, he's played it really well, but Ronaldo is completely deluded in that what, what, what are his outs? Like his, his, when, when his agents start, started saying he wanted to leave in the summer, you assumed that there was a plan. 
because you're sitting there thinking, well, which team that Ronaldo wants to go to would have him? And the answer you think is none of them. And now, if, I, if I'm Ronaldo, I guess I'm thinking United are improving. Being United super sub, getting occasional starts, coming on when they need a goal with an hour to go, coming on to help defend the front post at corners because he's really good at that, seems to me to be the best he's getting because United are going to hopefully compete for some trophies in the near future. And I, if I was him, I'd be thinking, what can I do to get another couple of the years here rather than how can I agitate to burn my bridges because what, what are Ronaldo's alternatives? And no one seems to have a good idea as to what they are, but his ego is such, and I guess it's the ego that's carried him to where he is, but his ego is such that he's unable to manage that. And you've seen other great players be happy with that. I mean, not as great as Ronaldo necessarily, but Brian Robson say towards the end of his career, he was someone who United would bring on when they were looking for someone to help the referee with any decisions that he wasn't sure about, to kick people about a little bit and to calm it down with his passing. Brian Robson was cool with that. And I don't understand why Ronaldo isn't cool with that because he doesn't have alternatives. If he did, then you'd say, like absolutely, then go and go for your life. But I think that Ten Hag would probably quite like a focused Ronaldo as an option. But Ronaldo's not allowing that to be the case. So he's he's, he's eased him out by making Ronaldo look like what Ronaldo is and making himself look quite calm and composed and in control. I think he's I think he's handled it beautifully. Daniel, good stuff. Thanks for joining us this morning. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Have have, have a day, everyone. That's uh, Daniel Harris there. It's 9.38. Will Ronaldo still be there in January? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think they'll... Just pay him up. Pay him up. He'll head off to the MLS or... Qatar or somewhere like that. Uh, right. OTBAM is brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. It's nearly time, Nathan. It nearly is, time yeah. for your mo. Mm. OTBAM back tomorrow morning with Shane in studio. We'll be doing a tactical breakdown with football writer Jonathan Wilson looking at Manchester City. Matt Williams will share the best 15 players he coached against. And we get to hear the remarkable story of ex-professional tennis player Tanisha Disniaki, who had to retire from the sport because of her battle with long COVID, plus many, plus plenty more besides. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.